Welcome to State of the Franchise, the podcast that talks about franchises of all shapes, sizes, backgrounds, genres, and types. I am one of your hosts, Tom Stadler, here with my co-director this week, Fred Dakin. Fred, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Tom. I got a question for you, though. Oh, what's the question? You know what they call podcasts in France? <laughs> no, I don't know what they call podcasts in France. They call it lay podcasts. Lay podcasts? Or, or la podcasts. You see, in, in different countries, they have gendered language. You know, here in the United States, we have all different cultures coming in one mixing pot. So that shit doesn't even really matter to us. Plus, in my personal perspective, I think it's just adding to the patriarchal hierarchy in this country. I could see that, Fred. I can, I that. can I tell you something, man? Yeah, go If I ahead. could have one superhero power, just one superhero power, other than being able to blast motherfuckers with my red eyes like Superman, <laughs> I wish I could speak all the languages in the world, man. I'd use that shit, too. Would you know all the gendered like iterations? That you yeah, I'd be talking male, female to anyone that wanted to talk to me. I'm telling you. <laughs> We're going to get ourselves a Royale with cheese and get this episode under <laughs> <laughs> Because they got the metric system, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's a little teaser for our, our topic today, uh, which is the incomparable director, Mr. Quentin Tarantino. Uh, if you're not familiar with his movies, he's done some famous works, uh, little-known movies called Pulp Fiction, uh, Inglorious Bastards, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, among others that we will be discussing today. Fred, before we dive into that, though, I did want to do a little bit of talk back from our last episode, which we rarely ever do. But No, but it was the Night of the Stars. It was. And I feel like we had a good opportunity here because we're talking about movies today. So we're going to reflect on some movies last time uh, after seeing our predictions for everything, everywhere, all at once come through and come to a reality. And it won the big prize. Yes, we kind of called most things. I was a little off with like the actors. I really thought that Kate Blanchett was going to win. That wasn't necessarily what I wanted in my heart of hearts. Yeah. I just felt that was coming, but it was a nice surprise that they cleaned up. I mean, Michelle Yeoh, Jamie Lee Curtis, yeah. which we did have a feeling that she might be getting that legacy Oscar. Yeah. How Still you... well-deserved, but, you know. Yeah, I was going to say, do you feel like that was the right choice or just sort of like the expected choice? I'm I'm kind of mixed on that because I am very biased for it. You know, I like those dumb Halloween movies, like all of them. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I was like, yeah, because maybe she'll say some, ha- she'll bring up Michael Myers in her Oscar speech. <laughs> I really thought, like, at the end of her speech, she'd be like, you know, 27 years ago, a group of my friends. <laughs> I was just going to be like, oh, yeah. Evil dies tonight. <laughs> it didn't happen, but I was still very happy for her. I mean, at the very least, we could have gotten a call out for The Shape, right? You know, it's like... <laughs> Wherever you're, wherever it is, just have him as a seat filler. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. But yeah, I think it was a, it was a great Oscar ceremony. Um, probably a, a return to form, truly, for the Oscars. I thought uh, the I think Kimmel was fine. Everything else was great because everything else was everywhere all at once, mm-hmm. and it felt great. I heard Adam Carolla was in the bear suit. Is that right? No, no. I was like, yeah, no way. I think it would have been funnier if Matt Damon was. There, I right? thought, I thought so. <laughs> yeah, but it was good. So I think we did pretty good this year as far as our predictions are concerned. And uh, yeah, we'll be kind of keeping an eye on so award ceremonies next year, um, which probably won't include our director today or our topic today. But 
maybe in the year or two after that? We don't really know. Yeah, he could be racking up an Emmy because he has written on uh, the new Justified show, which I'm very excited about. He has written a couple episodes. And perhaps we should go and talk to our guest today to get his insight on uh, his thoughts on Quentin jumping into the TV territory and beyond. Please welcome Pedro Hernandez. Hi, Pedro. Hi, guys. How are you? Good, good. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> uh, Pedro's one of my favorite improviser friends. Thank you, Fred. <laughs> I'm sorry. I had to plug you, man. We do I a lot of it. a lot of shows together at the old interchange. And uh, I was like, we got to get Pedro on. No, I appreciate it. I appreciate the shout out. Now, I do want to put way in on the Jamie Lee Curtis thing, though. Oh, please. Oh, go for please it. do. I appreciate you trying to say that she should have shout out like Mike Myers, but you know who's been with her through these tough times. Indeed. I think Activia. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing is more important when you're on a twelve-hour or fourteen-hour shoot than having a healthy bowel movement. You know, guys. That's true. Probiotics. <laughs> Probiotics. Are the thing that you people know? don't consider or think about when they're there. I, I do yeah. love those like commercials, like hers and the Sally Field Boniva commercial. Oh, yeah. Yes, they're in their sweatpants, just hanging out, happy they can poop or whatever. <laughs> She's the original queen of self care. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed, she really has made a nice career out of commercials, hasn't? she yeah just thinking about it yeah and she's even just like in magazine ads all the time exactly but (laughs) quentin tarantino (laughs) on to to quentin tarantino so i guess we'll start with you pedro Uh, what are some of your first memories of coming across quentin tarantino's work i guess honestly i was never really into tarantino until i i saw inglorious bastards mm. i hadn't really seen tarantino films prior to that mm. so i had to a lot of his catalog the greats that people talk about like pulp fiction reservoir dogs things like that i didn't really watch until inglorious bastards or honestly kill bill as well mm-hmm. kill bill's pretty big for me i think uh Growing up, my uh, my dad's really into like what uh, spaghetti western slash mm-hmm. martial arts movies, which you know heavily influenced like Kill Bill. Yeah, both movies. So yeah, I think those are the two big ones for me. Nice. Yeah. So when you saw Inglorious Bastards for the first time, were you like, I need to go and find more Quentin Tarantino, or did it just kind of no. naturally come up? <laughs> it, it happened. Well, it, it naturally came up later. I think after. I guess when The Hateful Eight came out, Mm. I think especially. I mean, I I would keep up with the movies coming up around the time, but The Hateful Eight came out, and, uh, you know, it was the eighth movie Mm -hmm. as well. Um, You know, something that I I think we're going to touch on is... He, he, you know, his decision to only make 10 movies. Mm. Although he's kind of cheating, right? Kill Bill's two movies, but he considers it one. Right. Yeah, and then I was like, oh, I got to check out the other ones. And yeah, I I went through the other ones. So I went try to go in order. Wow, that's great. How many times do you feel like you've seen all of his movies now? A a, a couple of them, just like once, maybe twice. Sure. And I'm like, I'm good. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we can talk about those. Yeah. But sure. other ones, like I've seen Kill Bill a bunch of times. I've seen Inglorious Bastard a bunch of times. Okay. Um, I wouldn't know to tell you upwards of five, at least for like Inglorious Bastards. It's so quotable. Mm-hmm. So big. 
Pulp Fiction I saw a couple times, right? I guess, I don't know, when I got introduced to it, I felt like, I don't know, I got a little... I appreciate it, but I felt like it, it's a little dated for me. Some yeah. of the references and stuff. Like you said, he's really into a lot of referential pop culture stuff, but like yeah. from a certain decade. Yes, absolutely. And that's not really our experiences, I think, at mm. least for me. Yeah, no, and I think it's almost like we become aware of those decades by watching his movies, right? And you kind of understand those references through what he's referencing. That's almost, I feel like, he, he's almost like a movie educator as much as he is a filmmaker himself. Right. Yeah. What about you, Fred? What was the first time you came across Tarantino? Well, I remember always hearing, like, the name Tarantino and then Pulp Fiction, like, seeing that poster, like, at movie stores. Mm -hmm. And I remember being at a sleepover with my friend. (laughs) And, you know, like, my mom didn't let me watch shit. So I was at my friend's house, and his mom let him watch everything. And they had movie channels. It was late at night. And Pulp Fiction, we were going through the TV guy, and I'm like, oh. And it was, like, halfway through the movie. You should put that on. Mm. Everyone says Pulp Fiction is cool. I was in, like, eighth grade. <laughs> he turns it on, and it's the scene where Ving Rhames is in the basement. Oh, God. Being <laughs> sexually assaulted. And that's literally, like, it was, like, right when that started. Oh, my God. And so we turn it off, and we're like, oh, shit. Okay. And then maybe it was, like, a year later. I was probably in, like, ninth grade. Uh, I remember at the grocery store, you could get, like, VHSs for $5 sometimes. Wow. Like, out of this bin, they had Kill Bill Volume 1. And I watched that, and it was, like, an explosion. Like, just the mixing of genre. And, like, yeah. Pedro said uh, about his dad, my dad was a big, like, cheesy martial arts white dude. And I love it for him. Like, <laughs> he, he was in, like, he actually went and, like, lived in Japan for a while. Oh, Not just deep. because he loved martial arts. It was a work thing. But, oh, like, okay. okay. So he, he in the original weep, that'd be great. Yeah, that'd be crazy. Like, I just love him. <laughs> and then, oh but God. like, because like he had like legit like swords that he brought back from oh, Japan, wow. but he also loved like Chuck Norris movies and stuff. That's so so watching Kill Bill just like really pulls from that, like the Bruce Lee world, even with some of the actors in some of these movies. Yeah, and yeah. it was just like an explosion. I remember going back and watching Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. And I remember watching them and especially the experience of Reservoir Dogs just waiting for the thing to happen. Because mm-hmm. it is all kind of these talking moments. And Bill, Pulp Fiction is a little more like pull and release, kind of like a rubber band with yeah. tension. But Reservoir Dogs literally has this kind of very slow pace that I came to respect and love those movies a little more later in life. But I do mm-hmm. agree with Pedro. There are stuff about these movies that can be a little dated. But definitely when I went back, I appreciated that like Reservoir Dogs kind of felt like a play almost. Yes. Yep. And I really noticed that, oh, this is like good writing. And that's what these movies are built on all the way until I saw Inglorious Bastards in theaters. That was my first pure Tarantino experience. Mm -hmm. I saw Grindhouse in theaters, which was one of the best nights of my life because... It was both those movies, but cut down like very tight, like an hour ten each, with the fake trailers all in one night, and it felt like it was an experience. But the first like full on Tarantino was Glorious Bastards. I remember being locked in my chair, being like, "This is great." <laughs> wow, 
That's crazy though. I mean, and I mean, I miss the Grindhouse. I remember when it came into theaters, but and a lot of people had the same reaction you did when they went. They were like, "Oh, this is so cool!" It felt like you were in like this old like style, almost like drive-in movie. And yeah, I mean, it's, oh yeah, the double feature aspect of it, right? Yeah, which I finally got to have that experience when the pandemic hit because they were doing drive-in movies at like, the market. <laughs> so we were like, "Let's go do it." Yeah, because when you watch like either Planet Terror, the Robert Rodriguez half, or the Death Proof half, and it's got the cigarette burns and the flashes at home, it doesn't really do justice. But when yeah. you're in a theater seeing it for the first time, you're really transported back to like a time I wasn't even around. It, you know? Yeah, absolutely. like you're in a gringy theater. There's dudes in trench coats in this theater is doing god knows what oh, you know like but you love it <laughs> hey when i watched it on my mac god knows what that was the one. Um, guys i don't know we gotta keep this pg-13 um, hey, <laughs> I, it is by the way we all have our socks and shoes off we all got our bare feet <laughs> yeah quentin would be very proud yeah. of us so he'd be be like oh yeah yeah let me get that low shot yeah, I noticed the feet. Yeah. Nice work, Jess. Nice work. I thought PG-13, and we just talked about feet. <laughs> hey, that's different. That's okay, PG-13. that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> we did, there's no there's no rating on this. It's unrated. This is the director's cut unrated edition. Yeah, we're yeah. unrated, but we're proper gents. Yeah. That's the deal. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of that, so it's funny that you kind of started like that for because i had a similar experience in terms of coming across tarantino sort of by accident my dad always loved the movie pulp fiction like well i mean when it came out he like loved it he saw it he was like this is amazing like Volta is so good in this he's like the whole movie's just cool and i just remember him saying that and so like when jackie brown came out my parents rented it and they watched it and they're like ah you know that was that was all right and um and I was like, oh, can I watch this movie? They're like, no, no, no. And they're like, there's there's sex in this. And so my parents left for the day one day, and they left me at home, and I was probably like, so 97, I was probably 10 or 11. And I remember I snuck in, I watched the movie, and I was like, whoa, this is wild. They're dropping like all these words that I know I can't say. And then <laughs> I was watching De Niro banging, and I'm like, this is, this is crazy. Like, I don't know how I feel about this. And <laughs> I was like off of Tarantino for a few years because I was just like, this is too much. <laughs> and uh, I ended up circling back around because I had a buddy in high school who just loved Kill Bill Volume 1. And when Volume 2 came out, he's like, I got to go see this movie. And I'm like, oh, I'll I'll watch it some other time. You know, I'm like, I'm, I got things going on. But then we <laughs> going over to his house and watching it. He bought like both of them on DVD and we watched both in one night. And I was like... All right, this Tarantino cat's got something going on. <laughs> I'll say like Tarantino. This Tarantino cat's got something going on, right? <laughs> That's a good impression. <laughs> well, he'd actually be doing it a lot louder, though, right? He'd be doing it like, you got to understand it. This is cool. <laughs> just seen Tom's eyes just then. <laughs> they were on fire. Uh, but, um, man, I think it was then... Uh, I just sort of had like a weird relationship with him though too because I liked his movies. I liked the way he filmed his movies. I didn't really love everything though that he was doing. And it wasn't until I went back and watched Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction that I think I started to understand his style a little bit better. And I was kind of out on the alt history of Inglorious Bastards when I watched it. I'm like, oh, why, why are we doing this? This is weird. It's not how it happened. And then I'm like, okay, I can kind of see why. And then, you know, he obviously had 
hundred people trying to emulate that. There's like shows now based on alt histories of it. And I think in that regard, when I was able to just sort of appreciate what he was trying to do, I'm like, Oh, and glorious bastards like is genius. <laughs> this is a great movie. And so, I mean, I bought like every movie he had on DVD and started watching them. But so I've probably seen Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs. That's why I asked you the question, Pedro, like almost 10 times each. But, uh, yeah, Kill Bill, I think I've only watched a couple times and in pieces, like on TV. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a lot of weird stuff like that. Like his movies, I don't think they necessarily hit or miss, but there's some where you are, you're like watching, you're like, I'm good. And I think I got it. And Hateful Eight kind of felt like that movie. I don't know. <laughs> it was it was great that it was shot on you know on actual film. Yeah, it was right? pretty. It's a very pretty movie. It's funny you say that about the play too. Or who said that? Fred, uh, Fred was talking. I, about, I think I made that. No, yeah. I think I did. Uh, that. Yeah, he did. <laughs> that was definitely Fred. <laughs> Hateful Eight has that feel too. Of mm-hmm. like it's a lot of people in a room. It's like an Agatha Christie Tarantino movie. Yeah. And it's got something. Yeah, a few of his movies feel are very much chapter like. Yeah, I think that's a common Tarantino choice. Yeah, hundred percent. Why do you guys think people keep coming back to him, or why do they hold him in such high regard? Is it the the referential stuff that he makes? Is it the way he's making these movies? Is it the the dialogue? I mean, or is it everything? I think he's got something for different. I think. When you go to see a Tarantino film, it uh, it attracts different kinds of people. Mm-hmm. I feel like has, he has stuff for like the artsy film people mm-hmm. to analyze. He has a lot of that, especially for some of the films that I think didn't do so well in the box office. Like at least they're good for like analyzing film. Yeah. Um, like like Death Proof or mm-hmm. Jackie Brown talking about exploitation films. But then you, then a lot of his big popular movies, I think, is because of the dialogue. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, I mean, he doesn't shy away from controversy either. No. If we're gonna be honest about that, um, and I think honestly, they're just very entertaining as well. Yeah, they're just very entertaining movies. The ones that are really big hits. Yeah, I think uh, the crossover appeal is definitely there. Like his movies can be blockbusters, but they also can be like the vibe of an independent movie. Maybe not some of these kind of more sprawling period pieces, but I mean, he did start out as like independent Miramax, just like Kevin Smith, you know, like they're in the same ballpark at that time. No, that's actually a good parallel too, because I feel like that's around the same time I found Kevin Smith was when I started really getting into Tarantino. and, Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I can just kind of forget that Weinstein was behind <laughs> getting these guys going. Just yeah, it's it's well, like it's it's a little hard when you have you know like like some of the folks that you know have come out against Weinstein in those films. Yeah, right. With big parts, but yeah, it yeah. That's a whole nother thing. Yeah. Well, and definitely, though. like I feel there's been like I feel Kevin Smith definitely takes the time to like talk. The wine scene's down. You don't hear Quentin Tarantino doing as much, and I think he probably should do it a little more. In fact, I think the last time he spoke out on it, he kind of had a controversial thought of, like, 
I kind of appreciate what he did for me. And it's like, no, don't. Yeah, you just don't have to say uh-huh. anything, man, except that that dude sucked and it was wrong what he did. Like, yeah. And you're going to work hard to make it not happen with your power. Because, you know, you're you're Quentin Tarantino, so you can well, make sure that shit in your general yeah. vicinity can't happen. Right. Well, now he's under the Sony house. That was what he did uh, once upon a time in Hollywood with, with the Sony production. That's good. Uh, so we'll see who buys this 10th movie. Yeah, that is kind of true, right? Like, where he's going to go next. And I think we'll talk a lot about that when we get to our later segment. <laughs> yeah, because, oh. you know, Tarantino, you know, he's a big deal now. But, Tom, where did he start out? That's true. Yeah. And it's a perfect time <laughs> to talk about that. Before Reservoir Dogs. Before Reservoir Dogs. Even before True Romance. Which, uh, we'll talk about how that falls into everything, too. But... So he began his career, um, really, I think the start of his career was back when he was just a, a VHS jockey at the local video store, yeah. the video archives. Yeah, could you imagine like being someone who shops there, gets movies? Because I bet it's like, uh, Quentin guy's here, Like we should ask him for a recommendation, but he's going to talk for like 10 fucking minutes. Yeah. Like, okay, just go over there. So funny, though. Did you guys ever have a guy like that at like a Blockbuster or whatever you got your VHS tapes from or your rentals? I think the equivalent of that for us nowadays, I feel like, is for video games. Oh, yeah. I think it's like you come up to a person and be like, hey, I heard some good stuff about these video games. What do you think? And they're going to be like... <laughs> Well, here's the lore, yeah. and here's everything <laughs> behind it. Oh, you don't know about the Dark Souls series? Let me tell you for like three days straight. Yeah. That's Tarantino <laughs> with movies, I imagine, at a blockbuster video. But all I, I mean, I wouldn't, I think, and I, because I was like seven yeah. when they went out of business, or like wow. probably 12. This is like That's crazy. This is a little on, it's on top of I don't of know for when sure. they went out. But uh, I was gonna ask your age, but I'm gonna like you know I, I'm not gonna have you like that. Not on mic, <laughs> off mic, off off mic. <laughs> no, when that guy you're talking about, I love my one of my favorite parts in Scream is when uh, Jamie Kenny's work. He's like works at the movie store, yeah. and someone asks him, "What's the werewolf movie with ET's mom?" And he's like, "The Howling," which is funny because D Wallace is not ET's mom. <laughs> She's Elliot's mom, but she phrases it that way, and he instantly knows exactly what she means and doesn't correct her. It's hilarious. The Howling. Good Joe Dante movie. Oh, that's a Joe Dante, huh? I don't think I've seen The Howling. But it's trashy, but delicious. But those people are real, because I had a guy at my local Blockbuster when I did go, because I'm a little older than you, Pedro, obviously, is the case. Blockbuster closed when I was like 14 or 15, and... I remember, though, going in there, and I was like going down like my horror like binge for the first time. I'm like, I need a good spooky movie. And this guy's like, how spooky you want it? You want something with like blood? You want something with ghouls? You want something with ghosts? You want something that's kind of like paranoia? And I'm like, just give me a good movie, man. <laughs> he's like, he's like, well, let me let me talk you through each category exactly like that. Like, here, you got this. You got your Wes Craven. You got that. And it's like, and getting it back to Tarantino. He's probably one of these guys to the maximum level that you could expect. Like you were saying, 10 minutes probably he'll 
chew your ear out. Like a better, better example is a GameStop employee. Yes, <laughs> he's a GameStop employee. Yes, he's a GameStop employee who will talk to you about different anime and video games. Right, that's what it is. Right, yeah. Don't you see that? Like the Persona series is inspired by anime, and it has anime cuts. <laughs> We started as a video game, like Dagon Ropa. Like yeah. Whatever. yeah, I know that's not what this episode's about because uh, <laughs> I know Fred doesn't like anime. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I like I like the anime in Kill Bill. Yeah, no, that's true. Go. There is, and like I feel like yeah, just give me anime like that, and I'll watch it. <laughs> but. I think it's important to know this context about Tarantino because yeah. it, it informs so much about the movies you see. Well, he liked he worked at the movie store and then he liked going to Denny's or IHOP or wherever and drinking coffee and eating pie and just talking for hours and writing. That's like his God, process. I would hate him so much I in know. high school. <laughs> yeah. I mean that's his origin story, right? It's his Joker origin story. He's how, the he, villain. He's how he became this Hollywood moniker. But I think everybody all these arc you know, cinephiles came and they're like, oh my God, did you see that? He referenced like Kurosawa very like subtly in this movie about like a black exploitation film. And it's like, yeah, he did. <laughs> he sure <laughs> did. So he, he's in uh, Manhattan Beach, California, working at the video archives. And he was known throughout the community for his film knowledge. And uh, Tarantino has said himself, when people ask me if I went to film school, I tell them no. I went to films. <laughs> just, just no. a very Tarantino answer. But did he say okay after it? Okay. Okay. Like, okay. I like, feel like that's move. I didn't go to film school. I went to films, okay? Okay. <laughs> um, he got his I did not go to a plumbing school. I went to the pipes. <laughs> that's, that's Mario. That's Tarantino. <laughs> I'm sorry. He'd be Mario, Mari, Mario, Mario. Yeah, Mario, Mario. I just thought you were doing a really bad Quentin Tarantino impression. I was like, whoa, Pedro's really going for it. Yeah. Well, maybe a Tarantino character of an Italian. Maybe. Oh, I love no. the Tarantino Mario Brothers movie. Oh, I'll save it for that. <laughs> save it for the coulda woulda shoulda. Sorry. We'll, we'll wait for, to talk about that later. Oh my god. But, just, we'll have to talk about his depiction of Italian characters and uh now that I've seen True Romance boy, my eyes have been opened. <laughs> <laughs> the whole Sicilian speech I am uh, still just like I'm Sicilian, so now I'm just like <laughs> man, this is offensive in so many ways. <laughs> uh so in 1986, Tarantino was first employed in his in Hollywood, so he's working with his uh, video archives colleague Roger Avery, who uh, hired him as a production assistant on Dolph Lundgren's exercise video called Maximum Potential. And <laughs> <laughs> I just had to throw that out there because that's like exactly how I would have expected if I went to Hollywood. That's where it would have started. Like, <laughs> It would be, though, Dolph Lundgren's exercise video now that, like, nobody's watching. It'd be a YouTube <laughs> video that he a put YouTube out there. Video. Yeah. TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> so from there, um, he was just kind of working his way up through Hollywood until he eventually had an opportunity to, well, I don't know if we want to talk about his cameo on Golden Girls. He has a cameo as an Elvis impersonator on there. Wait, what? Yeah, it's a real thing. <laughs> Oh, okay. I mean, I don't. I don't have much to contribute because I didn't know this. But 
I'll have to check that out later. I'll have to I, check yeah. that, that out. sounded familiar when he said it, though. <laughs> it sounded true. It's it's it is true. It's one hundred percent true. <laughs> so that was one of his first gigs after uh, he did this exercise video. So he did wow. a couple acting gigs. Yep, uh, that was uh, in nineteen eighty eight. But before that, he actually had an opportunity to co-write and direct a movie. His first movie called My Best Friend's Birthday, which was just a. Uh, a short that he did and it was left uncompleted, but some of his dialogue was included in true romance. So that's kind of where the origin of that came up. Cause true romance is, is written by him and it's kind of, I think Fred and I, we actually watched this the other night and we talked a lot about this, that it's sort of an unofficial part of his filmography even though because mm-hmm. he didn't direct yeah he wrote it and instructed by tony scott and it's very much like a fantasy story written from his perspective it's a mm-hmm. guy working in a comic book shop that ends up being like some lady and then they get into some crazy action <laughs> <laughs> it's true and it is it's exactly like that it is exactly what you would expect a quentin tarantino made a movie like that like Except it wasn't filmed like a Tarantino movie, and it yeah. sure felt like it. We'll have to talk a little bit about True Romance in a little bit here, because I'm curious what your guys' takes is on that movie. So he finally got his big breakthrough, though, because um, he met with Lawrence Bender at a friend's barbecue and discussed with him about this like uh, unwritten dialogue-driven heist film. And uh, so his buddy Bender encouraged him to write the screenplay. Now, now I gotta say, you know, do you have about Bender his deal? Please share. He was like a dude who's gone to jail. He's gotten into like real shit, and I'm pretty sure like that he's in Reservoir Dogs as one of the characters. I believe you are correct. I'm going to double check that. Or is that Eddie Bunker? I think you might be thinking of Eddie Bunker, but I'm actually double checking here because I know that Bender was involved with many of Tarantino's movies after that, at least all the way through Inglorious Bastards. But yeah, he definitely has a, a, a spotty history, is what it kind of <laughs> looks like here. So once uh, he decided to start writing this movie, as we know, a uh, dialogue driven heist film became. Reservoir Dogs, which was first opportunity to direct a full movie, and he was uh, funded by Miramax, and got Harvey Keitel involved, and gents, that's how we got into the Tarantino we know and love today. The movie was a hit. He got Pulp Fiction greenlit after that, and the rest just kept on rolling. We can go through the whole history of Quentin Tarantino, but I feel like we're going to kind of hit some of these points as we start talking about these movies. Yeah. So, Reservoir Dogs, being his first movie, is definitely, it's an impressive outing, despite it being, I guess, yeah, the the whole idea that it does feel like, it, it is like a play put on, like, I'm kind of thinking about women talking right now, because we're right off the Oscars, right? And <laughs> and I'm thinking about the fact that it is just these guys all constantly walking in and out of this room, you know, where they're holding up after this heist, and they're all trying to figure out who the rat was in this movie. And I guess where where I'm wondering is, do you feel like this still holds up as, like, what he's really capable of or do you feel like that's kind of his typical like a typical like 
get your foot in the door picture and like it's kind of forgettable from there on out. I think it does. I think the fact that it's still in conversation with a lot of people is like one of their favorite movies mm-hmm. of all time uh, is a standalone. I think it's impacted a lot of movies. I think especially the whole heist genre, mm-hmm. you know, and that aspect as well. I think that's very big and all that stuff. Looking at different dynamics, how characters can interact. It's a very well-written movie. It is. It's also, like, something that makes it work, which, like, he just has in the rest of his career. It's a tour de force of so many actors. Like, everyone pops in that movie. Yeah. Like, there isn't really, like, a bad performance in that. And it has just, like, that 90s independent, like a clerk, sorrow. Like, it feels kind of in that vibe. Yeah. And that matched with the, like, kind of nugget of what he can do later. All that together makes it a great rewatch for me. I love revisiting Reservoir Dogs. Okay. Yeah, there's definitely pieces of it when you revisit it now where... It does have that 90s indie feel, right? And you can still see those seams of, like, here's something that, you know, probably was cheaply made, which it was. But at the same end, it did have that polish that you kind of come to expect. Like, I think about that opening diner scene in Reservoir Dogs, and I think even back to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where they're just like sitting at the bar. Like I'm thinking of like when Al Pacino's talking to Leonardo DiCaprio and I'm like, there's still kind of that, that feel of just him cutting between two people. Right. And they're having these conversations and it's like, man, he, has he really changed that much? Yeah. I think, uh, something that Pedro talked about with some of the older movies is like some of the, he didn't specifically say this, but I think you were getting like pulp, like pulp, not pulp fiction, pop culture stuff that he throws in like the madonna thing stuff Mm -hmm. like that i think he learns how to write that less in the time Mm -hmm. in other movies he kind of makes like that interesting dialogue not have to be about these hyper specific cultural things of the moment Mm -hmm. and but i definitely think you see a seed of like oh this guy can make a dialogue about nothing sound riveting Mm -hmm. well you certainly see i guess that movie becomes (laughs) <laughs> something that is so very pop culture centered at the very beginning to all of a sudden it becomes sort of a, a mystery that you have to unravel of like, okay, so who ratted him out? Who's the guy in the mix here? Because out the gate, you're looking at Buscemi and it's he's very cast specifically, right? You look at him, you're like, this guy <laughs> is totally the dude that doesn't him. tip. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the whole tip thing, man. It just it grinds your gears if you've ever been in a service industry job, right? Like. <laughs> Or just being a decent human being <laughs> and just seeing your friend not give a tip or whatever. I yeah. Mean, I mean, that's not a good friend, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess, what do you guys feel like the last scene legacy is of this movie, though, right now? Because I know you're so, you're talking about Pedro that you felt like this still is somebody's, like, you know, favorite movie of, of his. And I think that's very true. Like, I think when you talk about, I think especially for the heist genre mm-hmm. and in you like, yes, I don't want to go into heist movies in general because Tarantino touches upon a bunch of different genres throughout his, I mean, his portfolio, but, uh, like what's the, uh, what's the new, what's the recent Netflix series. That's like a heist thing with Giancarlo Esposito. 
Oh, that's like this. I don't know what it's called, but it's like the where you can watch each episode and watch it from a different perspective. But even you can see like perspectives of like, it's very, instead of being just a, you know, you think about a heist movie, you think about the Ocean series. Mm -hmm. But like, when there is a rat, when there is betrayal, when there is like uh, these human aspects to these characters and interactions, I think you see the influence that Tarantino has. On those kinds of series. Sure. I think, I mean, I think that's the staying power is that, you know, he showed like the heist is done, mm-hmm. kind of. Yeah. But is it really but, done? Because then, yeah, you see the pieces of it, how it came together, how it unraveled, or, right? Um, fell and, apart. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up Kaleidoscope, which is the name of that series with John Carlos Esposito, because would somebody have come up with that idea of this kind of like, time jumping narrative without having a movie like Reservoir Dogs to go back and reference. Like after party, I feel you could say is a little indebted to Reservoir Dogs because you're peeling away new information based on the perspective of who's the film is following. Like once you start following Tim Roth and Reservoir Dogs, mm-hmm. you you have way more knowledge now and you're looking at the information totally differently now. Yeah. Well, yeah, then you could say that Reservoir Dogs walked so that Pulp Fiction could run because that style of following a perspective of a character's from there, you see that in Hateful Eight as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because that is literally divided up by, uh, I mean, the chapters in that are literally divided up by the people. Yeah. The eight of them. So. Exactly. We see it, though, too, even in, like, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, right? We jump back to the shooting, like of any of like the shows or the movies that they're doing right and Mm -hmm. like it's just a constant presence in every one of his movies i'm actually having a hard time thinking of one that wasn't just a linear narrative like maybe jackie brown death proof death proof Mm. (laughs) yeah well yeah death proof has a time jump but not like a big perspective but i wouldn't say a perspective no not perspective jump no just like a time i was thinking yeah jackie brown definitely has perspective sides yeah yeah it was interesting to even see that a little bit you know in true romance so i want i do want to spend a little time talking about this unless you guys have anything else hey i mean go ahead man it seems like you want to talk about the sicilian speech (laughs) hold on (laughs) I have one thing to say about Reservoir Dogs that's pretty quick. Sure. Uh, uh-huh. A while ago, Jason Reitman was doing like these live reads for charity where people yeah. would read movies. And they did, for Black History Month, they did Reservoir Dogs, but they cast <laughs> all the uh, roles with black actors. Oh, interesting. Common played Mr. Uh, Mr. Brown, which was Tarantino's character. Uh, Terrence Howard played Mr. Blonde, Vic Vega. Cuba Gooding Jr. played Tim Roth. Lawrence Fishburne played Harvey Keitel. Anthony Mackie played Mr. Pink. Uh, Anthony Anderson played Nice Guy Eddie. And Chai McBride played Lawrence Tierney. And then uh, Patton Oswald was the K-Billy sound of the 70s. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> I would have loved to have seen that. That's actually a pretty clever idea, though, too. I liked a lot of the picks, too, for the people. Anthony Mackie's not somebody I would have reached for, but I bet he does all right. Mm-hmm. I feel like he, did, he gets a... A lot of people don't think highly of him, and I, I think he's pretty good. Oh, I think he's good. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just enjoy him. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I have beef because of Altered Carbon Season 2. Oh, man. <laughs> Haven't seen it. All right. Well, 
But you as, aren't you the second person to bring up that show on this podcast? It might be. Well, Anthony like- Mackie. I mean, I'm thinking about serious roles for Anthony Mackie. That's one of them. Yeah. And I feel like we need to see more of that. Him just outside of Marvel because. Just, <laughs> uh, Eight Mile. That's right. My gosh, I almost <laughs> forgot about that. That's that's his villain story. <laughs> L- a losing bit. a rap battle with Eminem. Like, damn. Uh, the birth of an Avenger. Yes, that's exactly why he's like, if I can't beat him, I must become better than him. <laughs> so I had to talk a little bit about these screenplays because he wrote two that were very similar in True Romance and Natural Born Killers. All right. And they have very, they're almost identical when you think mm-hmm. about them. Other than one is, they're just going around killing people. And mm-hmm. one is. <laughs> and both taken by directors like that are auteurs that have very like significant voices. You yeah. got Tony Scott and Oliver Stone doing Tarantino. And also, we should just throw in the mix at this point, Robert Rodriguez doing from Dustal Dawn, because this is all the same time where he's has screenplays out there that he's not doing both with. Yeah. The, the writing and the directing, I should say. But it's a good way to bring that up, because when you look at those movies, I don't know if you're as familiar with those, Pedro, but... I can pretend. You can pretend. <laughs> Have you seen either of those three? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to bow out for this one. No, that's it, okay. Depending how you feel about horror movies, the only one I would... St- I would strongly recommend Natural Born Killers because I actually really like that movie. It's wild. And I'd strongly recommend From Dust Till Dawn. It's fun. All right. Yeah. I mean, that one actually has Quentin Tarantino in the movie as an actor. Him and George Clooney being bad guys. You know what? I do like Tarantino, the actor. He is kind of a weirdo, but he does have personality, right? I mean, he plays himself a lot, which is fun. And this one, he plays a little bit of a creeper in From Dust Till Dawn. A little? I'm just kidding. (laughs) I mean, he plays a lot of a creep. I stand by my statement. Yeah, there you I'm go. I'm just kidding. That's it's a joke. That's a joke. <laughs> I don't know him. Yeah, you're like, I'm going to distance myself like he's uh, Bob Weinstein. <laughs> Harvey. Paul. I mean, just any Weinstein. You don't want to be close to either of those guys. <laughs> oh, man. But, um, so, yeah, tell me about these movies, man. <laughs> I just wanted to speak on them for a little bit, only because True Romance is fresh in my brain, but... Understanding, too, that, like, Natural Born Killers was also kind of in that thread, too. You get a sense, I think exactly as you said, Fred, when you watch these movies, they clearly have that tone of Tarantino, but they are so much differently molded. And I think when you have someone like Oliver Stone, who has a very definitive perspective of, like, this is the type of movie I'm trying to make, and he's turning Woody Harrelson into somebody that can really legitimately creep you out because he's just kind of vicious and cold in that movie. It's pretty wild. Um, but I think Tarantino was just the first person who wrote that script and then had, there were a few revisements by a couple mm. other writers. Yeah. It really feels like Oliver Stone like was really feeling like talking about the exploitive nature of the media and probably really like, forced in that message more than Tarantino's script probably has in it. It's probably a little bit about that, but I feel like that's the Oliver Stone move. Right. Yeah, to take somebody's idea and kind of... And it's such an interesting thing to the point where I'm like, I almost kind of wonder what he would have done with True Romance, where it's definitely a movie with stuff. As as Fred so eloquently put it before we watched it, <laughs> this movie's got stuff. It's got stuff in it. <laughs> but 
Because you get a, a random drop in similar to Pulp Fiction of just Christopher Walken coming in for a solid five minute, you know, just doing work and you don't see him again for the rest of the movie, even though he's not, there's nothing wrong with his character. He's not dead. He's not gone. He just pops in has a little one-on-one with Dennis Hopper and then you're done. And it's like, huh, well, all right, there we go. 1970s clash. And then we're out. <laughs> <laughs> it just, it felt like so Tarantino to me though, that scene that it, it just felt so like, Oh, look what I'm doing. Look what I've written. Look who I have. Like, and it reminded me so much of like the once upon a time in Hollywood scene where you get, um, Luke, um, Luke Perry. Yeah. Like Luke Perry coming in, you know, staring it down. And it's just like, you're grabbing somebody who you almost like, you're like, Oh, I know that guy's face. And then he's just kind of putting in like some good work and you're like, he's got that. He can do that. Yeah. The dialogue definitely dated has that like Tarantino thing where like everyone's got to say racist shit stuff in it. But those two have a scene together that is electric and you can't deny, like, what's going on with that. <laughs> I mean, let me make my biggest pitch to you, Pedro. Gary Oldman <laughs> is a is a white man who thinks he's black. <laughs> to the point where he's calling Christian Slater white boy. <laughs> he's like, it's white boy day. <laughs> Brad Pitt. So he's he's essentially, like... He is the character from Tropic Thunder that Robert Downey Jr. plays. Yeah, but not in blackface. <laughs> and no, like, he's got <laughs> but dreads. his soul is. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But Gary Oldman's soul is in blackface. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah, and it's like that's uncomfortable, good, that's good and he's kind of killing it too, which sucks. But, <laughs> and then um, Brad Pitt plays a stoner on the couch, and that he's got like two scenes where he's like just stoned on the couch. And you got like Gandolfini's in like a bit part in there too. Uh, and he's coming in and just talking with Brad Pitt for like a solid just two minutes <laughs> asking where Christian Slater and uh, Patricia Arquette are. And it's it's so Tarantino. And then you realize it's a Tony Scott movie as you watch the rest of it. And you're like, oh, my God, there's just these <laughs> egregiously long sex scenes. <laughs> and like just nonsense shootouts where there's just like feathers and uh, I don't know. He's doing so much and just reminded me, man, Tony Scott went for it. And I feel like, I don't know if, I don't know if you ever landed the plane, you know, (laughs) I'm going to check it out. (laughs) Yeah. You might want to check it out. You sold me on particular parts of that movie. Well, like, cause I told Tom, I was like, if you don't like this movie, it has an actor you recognize in like every like 10 minute increments. It does. You named a bunch of people that I'm like, I know who that is. Yeah. I know who that is. All right. Let's get back to movies that are guys knows, but I did think we had to touch on those because they've got the DNA. Absolutely. I mean, I, I appreciated the discussion. It's a good preface to his, his 10. Well, it is. It's a very interesting like supplement if yeah. i could yeah mm-hmm. you because you kind of have to see right after reservoir dogs where he goes and gets into this right and he's yeah. doing he's got these scripts that are getting an option by these other directors but they're not quite hitting what he can do and i think it really sets up pulp fiction because that's where you see 
I mean, that's where he I popped think off. He, yeah. he hits on all cylinders, right? It's similar to like James Gunn, who I feel like the James Gunn movies people talk about are not the only ones that he wrote so much, except for Dawn of the Dead. But more when he can direct and write, which he loves to do, it's more his voice. I kind of wonder if Tarantino like treated From Dust Till Dawn, Natural Born Killers as his Snicklefritz scripts, or if he was just optioning everything out there. I wonder if he was like, I'm, I'm keeping Kill Bill to myself. I'm keeping this one, but I'll, I'll give him a Dust Till Dawn or a True Romance. I mean, I think like any good director who's very passionate about his craft, right? Yeah. Guys are going to be precious about their scripts. That's a very Kubrick thing to do of mm. like... I am going to do this project that I've wanted to do forever. You talked about doing AI forever, and it's like the only person that could have potentially picked it up was Spielberg and debates on whether he hit it or not. Well, that's another episode. But I think you look at somebody like Tarantino, and you can tell that the movies, when he's doing them, he's been thinking about these for who knows how long. Mm-hmm. You can really see that in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Mm, good segue. Thank you. <laughs> I'm loving it. Let's talk right. about Pulp Fiction. Why don't we? What worked for you in Pulp Fiction? Like, what, what when you saw this movie, was you were like, I am watching something that I'm not going to forget? Oh, man. I, there's so many good parts to it. <laughs> I I love Bruce Willis's character. Mm-hmm. So good. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, because he's just insane. <laughs> And it's good to see him break out of that, like, what you see in a Bruce Willis, like, kept together, act, like, other roles, right? Yeah. And in that movie, he's just, like, unhinged. I yeah. love that. It's good. It's good. I like Bruce Willis a lot in that movie. <laughs> I, I do like how segmented and, like, non-linear it is. Yes. Because John Travolta <laughs> in that movie just immediately, like, just dead. Yeah. <laughs> the first... How many minutes is it? Like, I forget the number, but he's like, it's really early on in the movie. He's just dead. But then you see him later on. <laughs> Was that right at the beginning? I'm like, no. I'm it's like, really fast. Well, because it's like he dies pretty early on and then but it like, goes back and goes yeah. back. Yeah. That's right. Okay. And yeah, it's very like we're talking. That's why we're like Reservoir Dogs jumps around in time perspective. Like Pulp Fiction. Yes. Because again, John Travolta dies like <laughs> almost immediately. It, I was just gonna ask: Is the Bruce Willis section probably your favorite section of Pulp Fiction? Do you think? Or? Um, I thought it was interesting that they explored like the John Travolta and Uma Thurman characters a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that was cool. I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. There is definitely a vibe to every segment of that movie, and you know, you've talked about chapters multiple times, Pedro. Yeah, and like. That is a movie where it almost feels like you're watching three different movies and all and then you find like where they actually intersect. And it, it I think once the Bruce Willis part comes on, that's when that thing and that's why I asked that question. That's when I was like, This is special. Like it pops off. Because you're like, What's he doing here? Why is he in the story? And then all of a sudden it just like all comes together. You're like, Oh, that's why he's here. Because that, that whole Christopher Walken interlude, you're like, what what happened to no. Uma Thurman getting, you know, the <laughs> adrenaline shot in her chest, right? Yeah, Bruce Willis isn't just there to introduce his hot girlfriend yeah. in the movie. <laughs> she wants the blueberry pancakes. The blueberry pancakes. 
I mean, Pulp Fiction is such a weird movie because it's like, what is the what is the plot, right? Like, you had to describe it. <laughs> that's a good question. I think I think that's a good question because I think if you if you told somebody, right, Reservoir Dogs, we did it already before, right? It's like yeah. there is a heist movie. We're seeing the out outcome. They're trying to find a rat. Who's the rat? Now we're in a movie where. There's a suitcase. Well, there's a suitcase, yeah, and a lot of people are... We don't know what the hell's in it. Revolving around a suitcase, yeah. And I think it's about the decision between good and evil. <laughs> Who's good in that movie, though? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's like yeah. everyone's bad, and then... Different levels of bad. Then Samuel Jackson kind of decides that he's not going to do the shit anymore. He's not going to be the wrath... Of the tyranny of evil men or whatever, mm-hmm. but it's just like all these people. Like, yeah. but there's also the shades. Like when I say choosing into a bad, you have John Travolta, who you know the whole thing with Mia where she overdoses, and yeah. he's like in a predicament. Like I gotta go get this fixed because if Marcellus Wallace finds out, so he's got to go to his drug dealer's house and he's got to hope that that guy is gonna help him out. And I don't know. It's it's definitely interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It is just sort of like, and I think the the title of like the Simpsons episode I'm trying to think of where they did their Pulp Fiction parody. It's like nice. something like 30 stories about Springfield or something like that. And I'm like, I don't know how else you describe the movie. It's literally just four different stories. You, you are basically just following a bunch of different characters as they are kind of revolving you know, very to looser degrees around Marcellus Wallace, and that's it. <laughs> You're just they're just sort of going through their progressions of like I've got to go run an errand, and somehow that errand becomes a fucking ordeal, <laughs> like mm-hmm. you know, until you have Bruce Willis who really turns an errand into a grievance. <laughs> it's just a wild fallout, right? Hmm. And uh, I just I just really like Harvey Keitel as the wolf, just coming in and just serving, just serving straight goodness for a while. Yeah. Then he leaves with the junk junk lady, like the junk person's daughter. He's like, I'm gonna go have breakfast with this girl. <laughs> I don't think we can undersell Harvey Keitel's um, involvement with it because he definitely helped contribute to the budget in Reservoir Dogs, jumpstart Tarantino's career. But then he keeps coming back, right, for yeah. at least these couple movies. And then we don't see him again after Pulp Fiction until... Cause he's, he's not in Jackie Brown, is he? No, no. He's got some audio, I thought, in, like, Inglorious Bastards or something. Or, no, no, I think that originally the Samuel Jackson audio was going to be Harvey Keitel and ended up having to be Samuel Jackson for some reason. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but he kind of just sort of falls off for at least a little bit, right? And then yeah, I'm even trying to double check that. Well, he's like, doing he... pretty good around that time. He's I think he got nominated for the piano. You know, he's yeah. doing, doing work in the piano and you know, he's got, you know, I feel he's got he's good. Right. Don't have to worry about Harvey. Yeah. But I think what we see though with Pulp Fiction, right, is we see a style develop, right? It kind of went from like the seeds of a style and it became all right, I've got my way of telling a story with different genres kind of almost in one movie. So it kind of plays itself like a mob movie in a way, and it's really not that. There's almost like a boxing movie in there a little mm. bit. You know, you get a little bit of like a, I don't know. Yeah, kind of like these heightened pulp 
stories of the 50s yes. is kind of what he's going for. Like, those, like you've seen the front cover of Pulp Fiction. He's going for very like a thing that already exists, kind of the whole thing of Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Yeah. His thing is a million things put together into one thing that seems like an original thing. Right. And that's something we definitely do see, I think, as we even get into Jackie Brown. Not only does he develop a style, he develops some people he likes to work with, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. Because <laughs> Sam Jackson comes right back. And he keeps coming back. Keeps coming back. Mm-hmm. Because while Keitel's not there, we also see... Well, Michael Madsen's not in... Uh, Jackie Brown, though. But he does come back. <laughs> yeah, he does come back. You got uh, Robert De Niro, who's not coming back to us if we're going over cast. You got Michael Keaton. Mm-hmm. We've got Bridget Fonda in like, one of her last few roles before she stops acting. Yeah. And then, of course, Bing Rames. Yeah. Nope. No, is he? Bing Rames is in Jackie Brown, I believe. Great question. Ooh, let's see who remembers. Oh, I do like this. I'll throw out Chris Tucker is really good in Jackie Brown. Oh, my gosh. That's right. They put him in the trunk of the car, right? Yep. And I would say my, and this, I guess this isn't in our, uh, could have what it shows our power rings. I'll say my favorite performance in a, in a Quentin Tarantino movie is probably Robert Forster and Jackie Brown. Oh, that's right. What I like about Jackie Brown is this is the introduction of characters we care about on an emotional level. Right. He's the bail bondsman, right? Yeah. Max Cherry. Yeah. Yeah. Bing Rams is not in this movie. Well, I was wrong. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> They get do. used to that. That's, that's going to happen a lot. And I would have said he's definitely not in it, but then he'll have, like like I said, Samuel Jackson do a voiceover real quick in Glorious Bastards. So I was exactly. like, maybe right. Ving Rames is in the back of a scene saying one word. Right. <laughs> but, like, they have Tom Lister Jr., who's also kind of like that big intimidating guy. He's like president from Fifth Element. Mm-hmm. And, I, I mean, he's definitely got that that Ving Rames vibe to him without the, the really cool For mustache. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Or just the general cool of Ving Rhames. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I think Jackie Brown is definitely... I, I like what he was going for with this movie. Um, I'll, I, I guess I'll put it here because, I mean, I'll, I'll show my hand and say this is not in my top three. I've always kind of had, I think since that first exposure, a weird, <laughs> weird relationship with Jackie Brown. And... <laughs> <laughs> it, it's less because of how I came to find it. I mean, so did Max Cherry in that movie. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> Indeed, this is true. But I think it's just, there's something different about this movie that felt like, I don't know, I, it was almost sort of like Quentin Tarantino was taking a lot of the criticisms that were coming at him and sort of giving a middle finger to people, which I think some people really love. And I'm curious where you guys fall on that. And for other people, I think it just sort of, they're like, eh, I don't know if it's for me. I think, I mean, it is a, I think it's a hot or cold kind of movie. Mm -hmm. You either like it or you don't. I mean, that's anything really. But yeah, for me, I I like the movie. Mm -hmm. I I think the development of characters is very good. It is, uh, I think it's a relationship-based movie. I don't think the plot is super complicated, I don't think that the stakes aren't, I mean, the stakes are kind of high, but you don't really feel like they're high Yeah. throughout the movie. I mean, it's, it's like, like half a million dollars in that movie. Um, but still it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, 
the stakes just don't feel that high. It's I mean, they feel high, I guess, for some of the characters like Jackie Brown, but I don't know. I think it's more how do these characters interact with one another? How do they, you know, overlap? And how did they get into this situation? Right. Yeah, and this is also more. This is an adaptation. This is an Elmore Leonard novel. Who like mm. you know out of sight, justified some of these kind of big properties. I was trying to think of the other one like Be Cool. That's the that's the shitty see Get Shorty was Get the one shorty. I was thinking of. Yeah, this is the guy who wrote those books that the movies you know were based on, and I think it feels very much like Elmore Leonard product that he just let the characters breathe a little i can see people find it a little slow pace but i like it because it feels like a 70s like romance movie that's back set against like a crime you know like a crime background mm-hmm. and it's you know i love it when they have that uh this is the delphonic song that's played throughout and some good performances, and I really like Robert De-, De Niro as like a criminal guy, but like a <laughs> schlubby, like a friend of your dad's who's sketchy. Yeah. Like. Oh, instead of like the refined guy, you yeah. see him like Casino. He's like a schlubby, deflated. Like, heat, yeah. yeah, right. I like that. Yeah, that's a very good perspective. I think because it's the opposite of like what we think of a De Niro movie. Because he's like refined. He's like. Yeah, he's a you know, right. You he's know, less calculated. He's here, less right? calculated. He is more you know, Bruce Willis from Pulp Fiction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I could. That's a good comparison. That's actually not bad at all. Yeah, I do think that is it. I think the performances are very good. I think the story, as as you kind of said, Pedro, is like it does feel a little like you're not quite feeling the impact of it. It's definitely no. a, a a character study. Of sorts, and you really kind of get to know, you know, Jackie Brown. You get to know this this schlubby version of Robert De Niro, and then you get to see how vicious, like you know, and but cold and you know, domineering that Samuel L. Jackson is, right? And like, and this, I think, it's almost like he's kind of trying to do something that's like Pulp Fiction, but he's just putting enough like spit on the ball where he's throwing you a little curve and you're not quite getting that same character. And I think that's where you really see how good Sam Jackson is. Right. Definitely. The character of Wardell. Yeah. I don't know. Other thoughts on Jackie Brown. No, I'm, I'm fine to move to our next movie. The, uh, aforementioned and, uh, I guess we can treat these as one movie, right? I mean, he does. He does. He does. We should too. Kill Bill. (laughs) Volumes one and two, which is just Kill Bill. So this is his I mean, we, we got hints of like the the martial arts movies to date, right? We get Bruce Willis with the katana, right? You get a little bit of just some like people kind of mentioning their love for like kung fu and all that. Mm-hmm. But you never quite get it all the way in the forefront until this movie where suddenly now it's it's very much like everything Kurosawa, everything that's coming from like these old like Japanese samurai movies, right? And it's just put into a totally different Quentin Tarantino spin, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like I feel the first one, the first part definitely has that full force, and I like it follows through into the second part, but then the second part becomes kind of like a western. The second part almost takes place, and it kind of does because it has the same characters in the world of Dust Till Dawn. The 
sheriff from Dustle Dawn is the same sheriff in Kill Bill. Oh, wow, yeah. So it's like that Texas kind of like West, like modern day Western is kind of the second half, and the first half is kind of this, yeah, like so, like there's like all the, the like Sonny Chiba's in it. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, yeah, I mean, for me, uh, man, I, I don't think anything. I guess one of the scenes that always stands out to me is when Uma Thurman, like, is tr- like wakes up in that hospital bed. Yeah, it is insane to me. I don't know. That is always one of the most impactful things, like that escape from the hospital scene. I don't. I don't know. It's just so uh, badass. It is, and uh, it's it's crazy though too. You can't even consider what's happening in that scene. I mean, and I think we touched on this before, and I'd be remiss if we didn't bring it up a little bit. I mean, and we'll kind of touch on it maybe a little bit, coulda, woulda, shoulda, but it's just that he's not afraid to dive into some controversial things and mm-hmm. put things on screen, and it's like, I'd rather not see that, but mm-hmm. wow. <laughs> you know, because it's like she like wakes up mid-sexual like sexual assault. Oh, yeah, that's and true. And yeah. then she goes on and does this escape from the hospital as you know that like Daryl Hannah's like coming after her and it's like oh shit <laughs> which that scene I feel is like he's kind of doing like the like the Saul Texas Chainsaw remake like last you know final girl going through the hospital yeah but he's doing it like a billion times better than anyone else it's got way more like pop than like a lot of those movies yeah do. It's a swing of emotions for sure, mm-hmm. all over. I mean, that all over that entire movie. I've come to appreciate Kill Bill a lot more than I did yeah. back in the day. Yeah, that scene has that great shot where the guy comes in and it's like of him at the door and it just slowly and it's like, you might know this because you went to film school. It's going in slow motion and it's almost as if the image is overlapping with each other. Right. And then you just see her at like ankle level. And she's got the knife, the scalpel, and she just does the cut. And yeah. it's just like with the music. I mean, talk about a score and just use of music, which he does so well. But I think this one more the score. I mean, part two, you know who does the score for the second half of it? Exactly. It's uh, from, oh, man, I just had it in my head. From I was like, well, Wu-Tang, From Wu-Tang Clan, the RZA does part two. Ooh, wow. And no. I back up. RZA does part one. Robert Rodriguez does the score for part two. Oh, okay. wow. Does mm-hmm. RZA do the woohoo, woohoo? So. <laughs> well, that's like a, like, that's a band. I hate no. you. I hate you. But like, he does like the. Yeah, that was, that was in Japan. Okay. That was, wasn't it? Yeah. The Maybe. Yeah, it was. That was the scene for the, J- so, the Japanese club thing. But oh, I, mean, I thought you meant like the song was like popular oh, in Japan. No. I'm like, I mean, Maybe. In, in that club. No, but which yeah. Which was probably a set. In Hollywood, but still. Yes. <laughs> like we talk about just like the fan of like samurai movies and yeah. kung fu. Wu-Tang Clan, the RZA, is like the guy. Yeah. And he he makes a great score for that first movie. Man, yeah. It definitely resonates a little bit when you hear like just some of those beats dropping as she's like coming, especially when mm-hmm. she's fighting whether the crazy 88 or, man, it's... Mm-hmm. That that just kind of pumps you up. I feel like you hear that even at sporting events now. Like they kind of do that as people are getting like ready to come out. Like, mm-hmm. what's that song? Because you know all the old songs, Tom. Oh, like I do. I got do. 
I, I don't know what that song is called. I think they it's did it called in Nobody Off- But Me. Yeah. yeah, remember they did it in the office. They did the one take, which is funny because it like Kill Bill. It's like a one take of her like just yeah, yeah. when she runs up the banister and is slicing people to that song. Yeah. I'm just like I'm having the time of my life. Yeah, that's the roof shaking. Definitely sticks with you a little bit. I mean, I, all the music in this one sticks with you, and I think this definitely. Something we missed even a little bit in Pulp Fiction, too, when they're dancing to um, Chuck Berry, right? I think that's like he definitely loves to go for the deep cuts. We get that on full display once yeah. we get to Once Upon a Time, but mm-hmm. <laughs> it's definitely not a Quentin Tarantino movie until you hear him drop a track that you know, like half the country's forgotten about mm-hmm. that wasn't even alive at the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think especially, you know. It's such a good revenge story, mm-hmm. I think, especially, and I don't think people give it enough credit. Like when people don't like Kill Bill, it's just a really good revenge story. Like she, you see from the beginning, right, where she kills Copperhead. Spoiler alert: um, <laughs> she gets her revenge. Bill Dunbin killed, but you know, like Copperhead's like has a family. Mm-hmm. She has a daughter, and she doesn't care at the beginning. But at the end of it, you can also sense that she kind of feels a little bad that she killed Bill, mm-hmm. but not really. But I mean, you know, she still feels kind of bad, especially with like uh, Sidewinder, I believe. What was his character's name? Is that Michael Madsen? Yeah, it's yeah. like Bud. Yeah, Bud. Bud. Yeah. You know. His character, I thought, was like the most empathetic. He is probably my favorite performance. That's probably my favorite Michael Madsen performance. But I think he's super underrated in, in that, that second part. Yeah, I mean, no one like I think Dave Carradine's great, and Lucy Liu is really good. And it just sucks we never got something like that again. Right. Well, it's hard to you know, but <laughs> <laughs> she's missing a good chunk of her head. Yeah. I'm uh, Lucy Lou? No, well, the no. Character. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I just meant I want more Lucy Lou. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, no, yeah, you're right. I'm going to go see Shazam, Fury of the Gods. Oh, yeah, she is. She's in she is in there. That's true. Now, will the balance of the DC universe be ch- like altered in any way in this film? I mean, it's it's possible. It probably should have been because this is uh, The Rock <laughs> supposed to be his nemesis, but uh, he wasn't about that, so James Gunn gave him the old clippy clippy and said sorry black adam ain't part of this anymore <laughs> but um that we digress though lucy lou kicking mm-hmm. around but obviously unfortunately you know she was sort of the, the big bad of the first one and then we we get into the second one where i do love the training montage and that's where i feel it feels more like a kung fu movie in the sequel mm. or i'm sorry the, the second volume the mm-hmm. the latter chapters if you will yeah i guess i forget that that scenes in that one even though the first one has way more of the other stuff that's probably the most of that kind of thing yeah, yeah. for sure it definitely has the most callbacks to something like like what is it flying gu- guillotine or master of the flying guillotine mm-hmm. yeah you know yeah, like a very classic like martial arts movie. And the, and the, and the Kurosawa standoff between uh, David Carradine and Uma <laughs> Thurman at the end with the, the five-finger death punch or whatever. Yeah. You, you know who was supposed to be Bill? Who? Warren Beatty. Oh. 
Well, I don't think I would have liked that. No, I, I don't think it works. It's it doesn't make sense that that was his original choice for me because David Carradine was on those shows. He was the kung fu whatever. He was on that. Yeah, show. that's a whole nother. <laughs> yeah. Whether that was appropriate at the time or not, <laughs> it's still like oh, it at makes the time sense. it was appropriate. Guys, no, I'm, no. I'm putting a pin in a lot of the the controversies <laughs> of, of. Oh no, we're Quentin. just alluding. I'm but. more thinking in the brain mind. In if I put myself in the mind of Tarantino, I could see. Him extrapolate. Oh, I'm gonna put the guy in, and yeah. he's gonna be the guy in this. Look, look, you know? guys, remember, Karen, you probably never Everyone watched the show. Everyone has Tarantino. <laughs> <laughs> Pedro doesn't believe in yourself. I mean, I'll do Mario. <laughs> Channel your Quentin Jerome Tarantino. Oh, I didn't know that was his middle name. <laughs> oh, okay. Use it. <laughs> use, it. <laughs> use those. Use those. Those knowledges of your brain. <laughs> I feel mine ends up going a little too Leno sometimes. Like, not say anything. He does kind of share the opening though. monologue. <laughs> Have you seen this? Have you heard about my new movie? <laughs> yeah. Have you seen this? Have you heard about this? <laughs> um, Kill Bill. You have to say though for it that I think now when you go back and watch it, it definitely you see his point in why. He treats it as one movie. I think it was Harvey Weinstein who actually was the one that argued against it. Was like, this needs to be a second movie, and he's like, no, 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 this is all one. And he's like, no, 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 we're it's too much going we're on. Doing yeah. a sequel. Well, I'll say this: that's my dream. See, and that's my number one pick. If I could see anything on a big screen, is he? He did it once. He had a whole cut. That's the one movie. The whole bloody affair was called. And I would love to go to Avalon and like yeah. see that with an intermission. It had an intermission. Honestly, Aww. that might be a better title than Kill Bill. The whole bloody affair. Yeah, because yeah. I mean that. I mean that's the whole thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. The bride got. I mean, she got murked almost. Because it's like whether or not I'm gonna do it all in one sitting. If I'm watching Kill Bill Volume One, I'm gonna watch Volume Two. So might as well give me the cut with both. <laughs> <laughs> it is rare, yeah. You don't you don't typically go back and just watch the first part of a movie anymore, right? And we've made a sequel to every fucking movie in existence now. So we gotta just basically <laughs> accept. You can either love them both, but this really is like they they are one movie. You you're not looking at somebody who was like I'm capitalizing on this reboot where you know it's somebody trying to like reunite with his friend's dead son and sit in a bar and play great balls. Well, you know, <laughs> Tarantino did reboot something. World War Two and Inglorious Bastards, right? That's true, Pedro. That's true. <laughs> yeah. He that was the reboot of World War II. <laughs> but before he did that, did, was there one before? He, uh, oh, he did a little thing called I don't Death think Proof. we'll talk about this long. <laughs> oh, yeah. Death Proof? No. So I think I said, well, this, while, I think I right. said this while we recorded. I do like Death Proof, but I very much believe it was... An in-theater experience, which makes both those movies hold mm -hmm. up a little more. I do not like the full cut of Death Proof. That's like two hours. But if you see the shorter cut, it works good as like an hour 15 movie. Yeah. I'll say that. That could be something that I would get down with if I got to actually see them back to back as they were intended, I guess you could say. Because mm -hmm. I feel like I've tried to watch... I've watched Death Proof like in parts 
over time to the point where I can't even tell you what the movie's all about anymore. <laughs> like it's just. Well, like, I'll tell you what. I saw the full cut, and uh, it took about an hour to let you know what it was. What it was about, really. It's so stretched out, and it feels like a money thing where they were like, "Let's add in more stuff and sell it as one movie," which they should have just sold the Grindhouse Blu-ray with both movies and the trailers and everything in it. I thought they did have one of those. See, that should be a silver case. Uh, ran- steel random- Steelbook. I'm sorry. Silver, silver case. <laughs> There's a random, like, lap dance scene. Yeah. Before. I mean, spoiler alert. It's a fucking. It's a slasher. Uh, kind of. Yeah, it's a slasher kind of movie. Yeah, we can we can spoil Death Proof. It's a slasher <laughs> with a. It's been out for It's slasher years. with Stunt a stuntman driven by a Kurt Russell, which I I mean I like it. I'm here for that. But like I said, that long cunt like cut is like it takes an hour to get to that. It's yeah. not good to the deaths. Yeah, and I'm like, what is this? <laughs> it felt. You know, it's that scene from Spider-Man 3 where, like, Peter Parker comes out dancing onto the street. Yeah. That's how the first 45 minutes of Death Proof <laughs> feel like. It feels like, what, what is this? <laughs> what are we doing? It's very almost Gus Van Zandt, too. There's, like, black and white scenes, if I remember. Yeah. And, like, no, give me that hour 10 of these ladies at a bar, then some shit happens, and then they get fucked up. And then it's another group of girls who yeah. fuck Kurt Russell up, and it takes an hour ten. Man, no, that's the fine. action is great. Like the car action, the action at the is end great. is like phenomenal. I think it's worth like whether you like that movie or not, just watch the last forty minutes of it or whatever it is. It's good stuff. I almost can't understand why that movie wouldn't just stay an hour fifteen. Movies are long enough as it is, like, <laughs> you know. I, but obviously they want butts and seats so they can mm-hmm. keep selling snacks. Honestly. That movie could start the moment where he gets uh, Rose McGowan into the car. Literally, don't even give any explanation before that of who he is or whatever is going on. Mm-hmm. I guess we could. That's the woulda, coulda, shoulda. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's fine. Mind. It's fine. Anyway, put a uh, pin in it. We'll, 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 we'll revisit it for, for a moment. We're gonna fix Death Proof. Yeah, <laughs> but you guys, you know who wasn't Death Proof? The soldiers in World War Two. Because that was a very bloody war. <laughs> and we come back. We come back to 2009. Yes, we do. With Inglorious Bastards, which I think now, and I'm, I'm curious where you guys fall, but a lot of people consider this, as he, he so puts through the words of Brad Pitt, I do believe this is my masterpiece. It is. I, I agree. Think so. mm-hmm. I, it's definitely top three. Yeah. For me. And it really just hits you right out the gate when you see the people under the house and the tension that builds the minute Christoph Waltz mm-hmm. comes on screen. Nothing unifies Americans more than hating Nazis, I'll <laughs> tell you that. I think that's also a big one as to why it's a masterpiece. Pedro, I would also argue nothing unifies Americans more than aligning with Nazis. <laughs> but that's just a segment of That's Americans. the next movie after this one. <laughs> Which we, I we, have, say, we haven't gotten to Django he yet. He weaponized is that in a great way, and I'll tell you about my Jesus. theater experience for Django. But we, we're gonna well, get no, to I'm this saying we'll get to that. But I'm gonna say three years. I do remember going to Inglorious Bastards and being like, "Will this feel like another Tarantino movie? Because it's a World War II movie. Is this gonna not be like entertaining the way I want it to be?" Mm-hmm. I remember that first scene happening. The I'm gonna butcher his name, Erno Maracone. 
And you know, Mar- I don't know his first name, but I know it's Marconi, the guy who does like the spaghetti western themes. Uh, yeah. He does the score, and he's doing this mashup of Fairlease. And you know the do 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 do. All the fairly. But yeah. then it comes in with like the Spanish guitar, and he's like doing these two things together, and then how it plays with tension and language in that first scene, where like the way he's like, I hear you speak English, I'm gonna use that so we can, cause I've exhausted my French. And now the movie in this scene is in English. And I just remember thinking, like, that's kind of tricky writing. That's kind of cool. Like, I'm going to make this scene, you know, because, you know. But then he does do, like, these scenes that are are in just French and German, which I do love. It really puts Christoph Waltz, all of his talents on display in a way that nobody has been able to do with him since. Except for Quentin Tarantino in Django (laughs) 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 Unchained. Because... It, it's like the perfect character, especially I, I think that first scene is so great. But then when he meets um, her again, um, is her name Elizabeth? Shoshana. Oh, I'm sorry. Shoshana. God, not yeah. even close. The character's name is Shoshana. Shoshana. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he meets her again in that cafe in uh, in France. And when they're just sitting down eating the strudel or the strudel or strudel. Strudel. strudel yeah. Right? <laughs> And that is just, and the tension comes right back, and it's like they can never have an interaction around one another without. It's just for too long. No, your shoulders are like in your Mm -hmm. ears, just like oh my god, he knows, he knows, he knows. Like, I also remember in the movie theater when it did the up close shot of the whip crane. Some guy in the theater went, "Mm." (laughs) (laughs) "Yeah, that's what like threw me off was the whip cream stuff for the (laughs) strudel, the whip cream." Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, better. But, I mean, yeah, it's just it feels like him just trolling her nonstop. And that's mm-hmm. just kind of like his character. It almost feels like he's very subtly trolling people. Mm-hmm. But you, you're just never quite sure if he knows or not or if he's just that calculated. I think a uh, interesting thing, but I think obviously was the better choice. You know, it was supposed to be uh, Leonardo DiCaprio originally as... The Hans Landa, oh, which wow. I think would have been oh, an interesting performance, but not wouldn't have been as authentic as having someone who's like is German? he German or Austrian? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, but he's oh, that's true. I don't know. I don't want to miss <laughs> classify. Yeah, but you look at that, and I feel like Leonardo DiCaprio is going to give you a role you'll probably remember, but not anywhere near the same kind of role. He plays a different kind of Nazi way. But you know what's the biggest swing and a miss, pun intended, casting that almost happened in this movie? What? So we got Eli Roth as Dying Donowitz, which is a thing in the movie that grinds me a little. His performance is a little like the... He's the, ba- the bear Jew with the baseball. And he's yeah. like, oh, yeah, swinging out the park. And I'm sure, and I know people. Out of Fenway Park. Yeah, out of Fenway yeah. Park. Yeah. You know who was the supposed Boston to play Nights, that yeah. was Adam Sandler. And oh. I think that would have been beautiful. The Sandman playing that part would have really made that movie sing, I feel like. Yeah. Dude's a big <laughs> little voice, you know, he did yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, your Fenway Park. But, but Sandler's a tall dude who can look imposing in Is the he? right le- Oh, bet more than Eli Roth. I'd rather get in a fight with Eli Roth than Adam Sandler. He was so buff, though, in that movie. He was, I guess, a little ripped, I guess. But still, like, I feel like Sandler, not now, not so much now. He's in his... If you got uncut gems, Sandler, in that movie, I mean, obviously 10 years younger, right? Yeah, younger, little spelter. 
But you get that vibe with him, or even just like Punch Drunk Love. Like yes, I think that that's, that's what I'm thinking. And that probably was something that Tarantino probably saw that movie and was like, he could do this. Mm-hmm. I think so. The other one, which again I prefer, what happened because we got introduced for me was an introduction to Michael Fassbender as his character. Yeah, Simon Pegg was originally, which would be a entirely different vibe. But as him as kind of a British stuffy kind of, off, I think he'd be more stuffy, ruly. Yeah. For is just the coolest motherfucker in the room. <laughs> but then again, though, it is kind of like fitting that like Fassbender does play this cool character. I mean, some great parts for people that for as long as he did, right? <laughs> for as long as he did, and then in he fucks up because he just gets the the thing wrong with the fingers, right? He puts up mm-hmm. the wrong three. Yeah, which that scene is just that's that's probably one of my favorite scenes in a movie of all time. Is just that whole basement thing, right? And so much great tension. No, that wasn't Brule in the room there, right? He's just hanging out with Shoshana, right? Mm. Like, yeah. Because I thought I had a memory of him sitting across from Fastbender, which felt like that's Fastbender, and then the uh, I think he was in like SLC Punk uh, Stiglitz. That guy. yeah, yeah, okay, okay, yep, yep, yep. That's right. Mm-hmm. So I was just trying to get some info. I think at the time, right, from the yeah. basement. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And it just so happens there's all these generals or Nazi whatever show up, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it definitely just has the. I don't know. This whole movie is a masterclass intention in a way that I feel like only Hitchcock has ever really touched. Like in that way of just you are constantly just fingers interlocked, like under your chin. You're like, what is going to happen? Are they going to get found out? And it's just you you never quite can see how the, the scene's going to un- uh, uncover because it always is going to come down to like one detail. It's always <laughs> like, what's the detail they're either going to get right? What's the detail they're going to let slip? And it's like Shoshana's so careful in that scene, and then you yeah. see him, and it's just like it feels like, oh, he did everything right, and he's like, oh, we want three shots, all right? It's like, mm-hmm. yeah. If we compare it to another movie, Jackie Brown doesn't feel like the stakes are such a big thing. Mm-hmm. In Glorious Bastards, the stakes are high, <laughs> the most, a lot for different people at different moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the most minuscule things, the stakes are high. And I think it's something that, I mean, it's a, it's a broader conversation on movies in general, but I think there's a conversation going on right now of, like, all these, like, Marvel and superhero movies. Like, the stakes are always the biggest. It's a world-ending event. We're going to do this. But it's yeah. like, you look at a movie like this where it is World War II, and the highest-stakes scenes are like, is this character that I have come to care about going to get caught? And you're just, like, nervous as all hell for them, right? And it's like... That's something that's missing. Like, you never expect Superman is just going to die, but he does. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, you know, it, but I mean, you know what I mean? It's like, in general, if you see Henry Cavill walk on, you're like, all right, yeah, he's going <laughs> to come in here. He's going to stop, whatever. But it's like, here you see it's just normal people just trying to do something for a greater cause. But yet it's like all down to can they get the information? Can they get the right event? Can she get the all these guys into the theater and get it on fire, right? And it's just, it's just a, a crazy. Can can they get the Fuhrer? Can they get the Fuhrer? And they do, which is like, yeah, sixteen. Our idea is that we could all have rotten eggs in one basket. Plan is blow up the basket. <laughs> <laughs> I love Mike Myers in that, just just killing it. So good. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mike Myers in a yeah a bit role in that. Oh, my, that's. 
wild. Just it's just mm-hmm. him pulling out. This is where he's starting to flex a little bit after Kill Bill. He's like, I'm going to depart from some of my my usual suspects and start grabbing some people and just see. Do you want to be in a Quentin Tarantino movie? And mm-hmm. he made a lot of careers from there, right? Like I mean, he was even talking about Daniel Brule, and now he's in like All Quiet on the Western Front, which mm-hmm. one it's fair share of Oscars, maybe too many, but <laughs> that's up for everybody else to debate. <laughs> got a kicking soundtrack just like that <laughs> let's talk a little bit about Django then mm-hmm. yeah i mean christoph waltz was his first movie with tarantino was uh when glorious bastards he comes back right away mm-hmm. yeah yeah and he's a re- and and then our good old friend sammy J. samuel jackson comes yeah, back again Ooh. and then we see leonardo dicaprio finally get mm-hmm. that role of a nazi a southern one yeah yeah <laughs> sorry no. still an awful guy plantation owner <laughs> yes but i mean come on potatoes potatoes <laughs> yeah, <laughs> potatoes, <laughs> potatoes that classic they, they each candy have, land candy land. yes they each have their own perspective that's very incorrect <laughs> And I think there's Monsieur some Candy. fascinating performances in this movie. Definitely, I think Christoph Waltz. I really like. I think I almost prefer the Glorious Bastards performance, but the Django yeah. performance has this roundedness and kindness that kind of is like a full character. And you mentioned Samuel L. Jackson. That's definitely in my book the best Samuel L. Jackson performance because he plays levels in that small part he has and how he talks to different people and what he's pushing what information he's pushing through to certain people right he is out for himself and he's feeding things all different ways and acting different to each person you see he's very much like the stereotypical you know what we think of like kind of minstrel style black person and then when he's in the scene with like just Django or so and he's talking normal because he knows he has to play that up He's he's in the house. He's Mm -hmm. not out in the field. Right. No, I I agree. I think it's so cool because, you know, sometimes people typecast Samuel Jackson roles as like, he plays one kind of character. But I mean, this is a very serious dramatic role that he pulled off so hard. Mm -hmm. So good. Yeah. He does get a bad rap, I feel like, because everybody expects that all of his roles are the wow. snakes on a plane because mm-hmm. of like the Chappelle show skit, right? Of like, oh, that's just how I talk. Like, it's mm-hmm. like, but no, like, you look at him in this movie, again, he's a very cold, kind of calculating person in private, but then plays up that like mm-hmm. jolly, like, you know, house oh, I'm servant. Not, I'm, yeah, I'm not offending anybody. Like, yeah. I miss you. Like, I miss a Be- rock in my shoe. People think he got robbed for not getting the Oscar for. Pulp Fiction. I think he deserved it for this more than Pulp Fiction. That's just me, though. Right. I think he's great in both. But yeah, but he's competing against Christoph Waltz for this one too, which is also hard. It's mm-hmm. like who who do you want to give it to? And the person who won against him at Pulp Fiction deserved to win. That was the dude playing Bella Gosi and Ed Wood, oh. which was probably the winner for me of that yeah. year. Yeah. Oh man, getting into who who should have won. <laughs> we're, not quite, we're not quite a coulda woulda shoulda, but we're, we're getting close, you guys. We're getting very close. We got two more movies. To talk about, um, but as far as Django is concerned, I mean, it's it's a tour de force in terms of performances. Yeah. And Jamie Foxx, I don't think, gets enough credit. I mean, yeah. in general, for his career, he rarely mm. phones it in. He rightfully got recognized for Ray, and I think it's just like. I know the the sliding doors that they wanted Will Smith for that role. Mm-hmm. Dodged a bullet in hindsight, probably. Yeah, 
But it's such an interesting thing that he starts to really go into these period pieces, start like full bore. He's like, all right, I'm going back to the 40s, but now I'm going back further to the 1860s, 1850s. Antebellum himself, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's here he's just throwing us into the past and he's rewriting history as he does it. He's all in on like, this is my history. And which one was the movie, Fred? I know you mentioned that he said is like a movie in the universe that they kill, was- kill Bill and from dust till dawn. Those kind of movies are movies that would be in the universe. I feel these 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 period pieces are real life because like in true romance, the Lee Donowitz is the movie producers. He says my great grandfather or grandfather was in World War II, and that's Donnie Donowitz. Right. So I think the period pieces are tied in, and I'm sure some of those last names. I'm sure there's stuff to connect it. Right, like the Vega Brothers, right through Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. Reservoir Dogs. Which I mean, like if we had uh, three hours to talk about everything Tarantino, we could get mm-hmm. into all the lore of who's who. But I think it's it's definitely big to talk about the themes of this movie where it is another revenge story that we were talking about with Kill Bill, right? And I mean, in a way, all of these are revenge stories, are they not? Even in Glorious Bastards hmm. is. Yeah, a revenge I don't know. I would I would put it up like an Odyssey, really, like an epic. Mm-hmm. Definitely. For Django. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's less about the revenge, more about he wants to just save Carrie Washington, mm-hmm. his wife. Revenge happens. It's true. That's what I would say. I think if he, if like, I don't think, I mean, yeah, he probably would want revenge, but he's outmanned, he's outgunned. Mm-hmm. I think his priority is just get the heck out of there, really. Yeah. It's a lot of... It becomes revenge at the, the, at the final act, I think. Yeah. it's It's revenge by way of like retribution or even just like romantic driven, you know, motivation, right? Because that's even kind of in a way of Glorious Bastards too. It's revenge by way of righteousness, right? We're, we're trying to defeat the greatest evil that's like we've ever known. You know, here it's like this is all about retribution for all these people that were you know, put down and then he, but, it, but ultimately it is about him trying to save his Gary <laughs> Washington. Right. Yeah. He always adds the word fantasy to like these movies too, because I think he likes the idea of like, Oh, I'm going to make things happen that didn't necessarily always happen. I'm going to have this guy show up, shoot the slavers, free all the slaves and tell him he should probably put a bullet in another slaver, bury him and move to a more enlightened side of the country. Right. Like that stuff wasn't happening all the time. And definitely there were people who were helping, but he can write it this way where like, like I said, when I saw this in a packed theater, the cheers when these like racist assholes got killed were like, it was like people were having like cathartic moments in the theater. It was amazing. Right. I think, I'm going to throw this out there. I think this was the first one I saw in theaters of his movies was Django. And it was exactly as you described. I felt like it was a lot of hooting and hollering and people mm. were just getting all up in this. Yeah, there's people cheering in the aisles at one point. Like the end where it's just, I think it was when Tupac kicks in, I think, oh, at yeah. the part. Yeah, oh God. <laughs> it's, uh, it's definitely... It starts to really build on what Inglorious Bastards, and I think Django's always going to f- be, I don't know, maybe a little underrated, right? Like, or do you guys feel like it is up there as like this is something that was like a great work that he did? I think it's a great work. I think especially it just I think framing is important. 
I think, again, we can go through all the controversies because of his liberal use of the N-word in that script. But, I mean, yeah, it was the antebellum South. I don't know. Yeah. Well, this um, is the first one I felt like, well, yeah. It was justified was more than the, the other ones. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> casting yourself as the guy who's going to literally say the N-word to Samuel Jackson, that's a little, I'm looking at you like, huh. But, like, yeah, yeah in this, I guess it makes sense because I think everyone was talking like it's that. It's at least more period appropriate that you know everyone would be saying that because that's just, I mean, it's like Huck Finn, right? We've gotten a time capsule of how people were talking at that time. It just reminds me of like, ah, man, it's, it's like Count of Monte Cristo kind of mm-hmm. like that story of like he's separated from his wife. He learns to dress a certain way. He learns these skills from, well, yeah, very learned and aristocratic person, which is Christoph Waltz's character, who I mean, knew who the heck wrote the Three Musketeers and was very well read more than Leonardo DiCaprio's character. And then he uses that kind of disguise and new status to come rolling in to try to save his wife. Right. So I think and I get, it should get the credit it deserves. I think they did a great job. Uh, Jamie Foxx says, Django, amazing job. I don't know if it had as much breadth as the other characters did, though. Because he's like the righteous hero mm-hmm. throughout the whole thing. But well, he's yeah. much like the first letter of his name. He's kind of silent. <laughs> a little bit. But in a way, I think that's where the performance kind of sings. And when you do see it again, you kind of understand he's doing a lot with his emotions. Yeah. But you're so entranced by all the big characters that everyone else is giving between Sam Jackson and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and even Walton Goggins when he's on there for a bit. It's like, holy cow, where where is the room to even let Django be just sort of like contemplative you yeah know? he's got a great unspoken moment when they're bringing it's a upside moment where they're bringing his wife Brumhilda out of the hot box which is just a hole in the ground where she's like heating and it's just cuts to him his eyes him like wanting to go to his gun because he's like this is my wife but he knows he can't do anything in the moment because mm-hmm. there's so much riding on it yep like he does, he has a lot of scenes like that, and so does Christoph Waltz. Like when the one slave gets attacked by the dog, the just like focusing in on those actors while horrible things are happening, they're yeah. just giving world class performances. They are, and it's definitely something that we see continued as we go to the West, the old West that is with, uh, which is not too far removed from the era of the antebellum post Civil War, like just post is yeah. But we are going to the West where we have the Hateful Eight. And Goggins makes another appearance. Goggins comes back. Playing a, like a really nice guy. Yeah. <laughs> Sam Jackson comes back. Kurt Russell comes back. What do you mean? He's the he's the new sheriff of Rock Point. <laughs> <laughs> or Red Point. Is it Red or Rock? I forgot the yeah. name of the town. He's the new sheriff. I do. <laughs> Walton Goggins is an, oct- is an actor I love just because I do love Justify. But man, I love Justify. he plays a lot of shitty fucking dudes. He does. He does. But I love him in Justify because every like other movies, he's this loud like yelling guy. But in Justify, he's like... I don't think you understand, Raylan. <laughs> He's just like this very quiet. We grew up together. <laughs> yeah. The best Goggins is the one that is like quietly calculating everything. Mm-hmm. And he's just, when he can just say like a couple lines and you're like, oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got to watch Justified. Uh, I think well, I'm going to watch that. 
Hateful Eight. Yeah. Was he was he calculating? <laughs> no. Maybe not, maybe uh, not so, much. so much, no. But then again, who was calculating in this? I mean uh-huh. I think everybody it was a it was a series of miscalculations mm. on everyone's part. Everyone tried. Yeah. But I mean we get Michael Madsen back too. Um get who did he play again? Was he the Mexican? He Michael no, the guy <laughs> who plays the <laughs> Mexican. He's actually played by a Mexican actor. He's the guy. I okay, he was good. Because <laughs> he's the, you need two pieces of wood, not one. Which was so great. I just remember uh, being at the just, in that uh, Urban Harvest for a show. Yeah. And someone was trying to get the door open. And Tony just like, you need two pieces of wood. One ain't good enough. <laughs> but Michael Madsen's the guy who's writing his life story. And, yeah. you, and you just walked in. Man, and then you get Tim Roth just doing the most British. Ass. He, he's doing the Christoph Waltz kind of talking when he's in the film, you know? Yeah, right. But it's just, I mean, I feel like this movie, you know. No, how do you feel about it? Because I want, I want your guys' opinions first. You want, okay. This is Pedro talking. <laughs> I'll throw my opinion first. Yeah. There is something interesting about the conceit of this movie and every move that happens is like, yep, I can see where this should have worked. (laughs) I don't know that it all did work. I don't know. Not for me, at least. Not for me. No. Uh, I love a good, again, it's about the stakes. Mm -hmm. If you're going to do a movie about like, so calculating and like, um, so cerebral, right? Mm-hmm. Let's go back to Reservoir Dogs, right? It's a diamond heist. It's yeah. big. It's whatever. Jackie Brown, $500,000. Meh. But then here it's, oh, it's $10,000 bounty, which probably in 1870, 1880, a lot of money. Yeah. But still, I mean, it's a bounty hunting Western, like... Mexican standoff. Yeah. Between ex- all these people. Exactly. It lasts fine. for a while. <laughs> but yeah, it, that's my biggest issue. It lasts for too long, I think. Yeah. I don't know. And I think it's interesting you brought up Reservoir Dogs because I feel like that's a movie where everybody wears their emotions on their sleeves, right? Like, oh, and this one, no. Yeah. And this one, you can't quite tell what everybody's thinking, which is the point. Yeah. But it almost boils for too long to the point where it starts to simmer and and not in a good way <laughs> i just feel like you lose a lot of the steam that you had right away and it's almost like Chan- by the time channing tatum comes in you're like oh okay yeah oh all right well well hmm all along <laughs> you know but he bursts out <laughs> yeah man just everybody's getting shot left and right <laughs> i don't know what do you think fred I like this movie. Do I don't love it. It's okay. It's messy for sure. I think it could deal with some trimming, but this is a movie I probably throw on every other year when it's winter and uh, it's a blizzard and it's a great vibe movie. It's not one I'm like going to sit down and 
it's always uh oh it's you know dead of winter i'm gonna throw on this movie it's very like it's got a great vibe great uh marconi score again Mm -hmm. i think there are great tense moments in it but it doesn't hold the tension throughout the whole movie i think the poisoning part is pretty intense and i do think uh jenny tatum is really electric even though he comes in maybe too late for you guys i think he's really good in that little bit that he's in that's like you know how uh the guy in uh, Fableman's got nominated for me. That's the kind of role for like someone coming in for like five minutes. He's just like, bam, 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 bam. And he's really good. And although I don't like her character, I think Jennifer Jason Lee is doing a good job of being just like this awful whatever. And you feel bad for her. Then you realize that she's like part of this gang. And like yeah. she's kind of like, yeah, I love all that stuff. And... I think, again, Samuel Jackson, I don't love everything he's given, but he's serving in this movie. Yeah. That's fair. It is fair. I think. But messy AF. Yes. Yeah. It is. It's a little messy. There's. I think what I appreciate about this movie most is that it sprung Tim Roth and Jennifer Jason Lee to get a bit part in Twin Peaks The Return. <laughs> <laughs> As just this weird assassin team where they're just sitting in a car just eating cheetos non-stop like they're just snacking constantly watching <laughs> kyle mclaughlin's house and it's just it's like a very tarantino role that lynch clearly wanted that vibe and he's like i need people who what wait what is he like what he's like i looked at that uh hateful eight movie <laughs> and it certainly resonated with me i wanted some of that jennifer jason and i wanted some of that timothy roth <laughs> i wanted you to say i wanted some of that jennifer jason and i wanted some now <laughs> <laughs> I will say, like, as, like, because I don't know if you guys ever do what I talked about, where, like, you're just at home chilling, you're not really watching, watching, but you just throw on a movie. Mm -hmm. All right. (laughs) I loved that Netflix extended long-ass chapter one, because I would just throw on, like, one chapter worth, and then, like, maybe a day or two later, I'd watch the next one. It made it, so maybe a more episodic Titan, Titan little sections would have worked better. You I know? think when I revisit it, that's the one I want to watch. I want to see how it does play out with a little bit of like break in between where it is sort of like your multi-chapter play. It's been mm-hmm. Pedro has consistently called out. Yeah. Tarantino. Tarantino. <laughs> <laughs> Pedro's like, this thing is a long episode already. No, it's not. I'm fine. I mean, no. Chapter, chapter nine. Yeah. Chapter it wouldn't be a Tarantino episode if we didn't go a little long. Yeah. <laughs> hey, but it's all good. There is no fat. No, there's there's <laughs> no fat here, other than maybe some of the bits we do. <laughs> <laughs> no, my bits are lean. Yeah. Well, let's move into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Let's keep going west. Because um, <laughs> to Hollywood, <laughs> to Hollywood, we're no baby. longer in the mountains of whatever we've talked a little bit about this movie already i think i've constantly come back to it because it's been on my mind recently because yeah. again put a lot of people who've blown up in the past like two years in very small bit parts it's such a it's such an interesting aspect of his work that he's able to identify some of these people and it's like when he gives them sort of like you're in my movie 
suddenly they're on the radar of like everyone else in Hollywood. And this kind of had like the Oppenheimer thing where the cast list just kept growing and growing. You're like, Scoot McNary? Oh, uh, the guy with Luke Perry's in this? Yeah. Like it just kept growing and growing. And then like when you watch it, you know, like people have like kind of smaller scenes, but it's just that was one thing I always loved. When a new Tarantino movie comes out, you hear the cast. You even hear the names sometimes because he's got good names. Mm. And then you're watching the movie and you're wondering like how much each person's gonna have in it. Right. I mean, you can even like a Timothy Oliphant role in here that's just <sighs> sings a little bit. But I, I just want to say because I don't want to forget that's one of my favorite Tarantino shots in a movie is where it's Timothy Oliphant and Leonardo DiCaprio and Leonardo Cap it, the. Camera is panning behind Timothy Oliphant towards Leo, and Leo flubs the line. He does like the hold on, can we, can we do one more? And he does like the hand thing. Yeah. The camera resets back, and Timothy Oliphant does like this look over the shoulder because like Leo's character is like cracking at this point, like, mm-hmm. and he just does this like awkward like oh geez, and it feels so like like they're filming a movie right. like and it like you feel it on the tracking whatever they're using yeah how about bruce lee <laughs> <laughs> Peter, we're not at the controversies <laughs> <laughs> i i like so like i don't know sorry about- sorry i'm sorry <laughs> we can probably honestly start getting into some of that though. yeah why does he like david carradine way more than bruce lee <laughs> I, the disrespect. But was was there ever any truth to Bruce Lee being kind of like a showy offy guy or no? I don't know anything about Bruce Lee. That's I mean, why I didn't, I didn't have opinions. Here's what I know about Bruce Lee. If he's getting in a fight with whoever the fuck, he's going to beat them in a fight. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing, right? There's a, I think this movie, a big thing was what, are they an honest perspective? Are they a truthful narrator? Yeah. Right? You get that whole thing in the movie. Oh, yeah. Is it, is it a truthful and honest narrator? Um, I don't know if you trust BP. No. I mean, yeah. Did Bruce Lee lose a fight against this guy <laughs> who, I don't know, probably just got in a bar fight or two once? <laughs> Uh, I mean, he does kill the Manson family. So, I mean, there's at least some of that that well, we did again, see happen. He, he Altered just, timelines, yes. It's once upon a time in Hollywood. You it's know, a fantasy. I never Correct. thought about it till now. He is tripping absolute balls when they come in that house, right? <laughs> like, is what he's seeing actually happening? I have never even well, considered that till now. It's like a tar situation. Is <laughs> any of it true? <laughs> I mean, listen. Is the, he not just tripping the whole time? Did I we was know the Golden Age of Hollywood? Yeah. <laughs> did we know that Leo had that flamethrower in his garage? I guess he did. He did say he had that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they were asking about like the flamethrower in the beginning of the movie, and has that great like insert shot where he's like, "Oh shit!" He can't yeah. like control it. Right. Right. What do you guys think about this movie? Just overall, I think it's good. Yeah, I like it. It's cool. I I don't know. I, it's not one of my favorites. Yeah, but. It's a good movie. Yeah. When I first, before I saw it, I had kind of an expectation, too much yeah. of one going in, that it was going to be more like Inglorious Bastards or Django, kind of like a high tension thrill ride with like these scenes of suspense. Mm-hmm. And when I didn't get that, it really threw me off. And it took me a couple watches, but now I really like it. It's not in my top three, I'll say that. But. I think like some of there's great stuff with Leo and Brad in it. 
I like everyone who comes in just for a little bit. I think they all do pretty well. Like yeah. Al Pacino is kind of having fun. He's doing his like big character, but it's a new big character, yeah. which I like. <laughs> And like I said, I think even Timothy Oliphant comes in and kills. I like uh, the dude from uh, Homeland playing Steve McQueen. I thought that was yeah, pretty yeah, great yeah. casting. I mean, it's even great. Uh, the little girl in the scene with Leo, right? Like, yeah. you're even kind of like, which one of the hardest things that you can ask an actor to do is play an actor in a movie, you know, and, and sell it as though what's like B method, you know, and you have Leonardo DiCaprio. If you had to ask anybody to try and crack that code i think he does about as best as anyone's ever going to do with that of like him like slapping himself in the trailer like you idiot like, how did I get this? yeah four whiskey sours <laughs> why couldn't you stop it too it's <laughs> my favorite and i love it he th- he throws the bottle of booze out the trailer window and then you see him go and get it in the yeah. next shot that meltdown i thought man. he was gonna get an oscar for th- i thought that was gonna get him the nom that like oh. freak out He's got his own issues with people. In LA it took well. a bear attack for him to go. I know. <laughs> he literally had to be mauled by a bear and crawl all the way back through, I don't know, Wyoming or whatever. I just love it when he flubs that line at the table. And he's like, I'm fucking this up, man. He has like that moment where he's like, I'm not kidding. I mean, we've all done stage stuff. <laughs> yeah. and We've all been there. We have. It was kind of cool seeing Leo like do that and be like he was playing it like perfectly like red in the face and just like what do I do? What do I, yeah, <laughs> he's so good. I, it, I honestly, yeah, he, I felt like he was putting on a tour de force for the most part in this, but he's never selling it short. You know, he's never just you know cashing a check. He's always in there and he's doing what he can do. No Walton Goggins, but Boyd Crowder's. <laughs> Uh, assistant in Justified plays Manson, the like guy that always helps him out, who's oh, like the methed yeah. out dude. So there's some Justified blood in there, along with Timothy Oliphant. Every time Fred can get a chance to throw some Justified in this, he's going to do it. <laughs> I mean, I think we need to talk about Justified in another. <laughs> We're gonna have Pedro back for Justified. I'm down. I love that show. I've never seen any of it. I so love like, uh, I love Moonshine. I love the Appalachian Mountain yeah. region. It's I great. love. I love any show where, uh, like, some sort of law enforcement grew up with everyone in the small town, you know. And, look, we might have played softball together, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to arrest you for dealing meth. Not like, I love any show that's like that. Andy Griffith show? <laughs> Did that happen to Andy Griffith show? Uh, that's basically the whole conceit <laughs> of Andy Griffith is he's just a small town sheriff. And he's got Don Knotts and fucking Gomer Pyle with him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, but... I think this is a kind of a good launching point for us to even just jump into Kudo Wada Shudo. We've said nice. a lot about yep. it, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, it's we just touched on it a little bit with, like, Bruce Lee and sort of, like, the treatment of, I think, any other race by <laughs> Quentin Tarantino. And he's gotten a lot better over time, but, man, he's somebody who's never been shying away from, like, I'm going to put something controversial in the movie. And I wanted to start here, at least, before we talk about yeah. like some of his future potential. Because I think when you look back on it, it's like, man, if he could have cleaned up some of that early on, you know, do these movies maybe age slightly better than they are? And some of them are still great. But it's just, you have this stuff where you, you're kind of are going in ready to cringe. at like, oh, God, what is, mm-hmm. what is he going to say? What is... He is the edgelord that works at a video store. Right. That is what he is at heart. And same edgelords work at GameStop now. So <laughs> it, it is what it is. That's that's his take on 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 characters that are non 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 white. 
I'm so. convinced you gotta watch True Romance now. No, I gotta watch it. <laughs> you got a 4K player? I'll find it somewhere. <laughs> you can borrow my copy. You've got a 4K yeah. player. But he's he's also like the guy, though, who grew up at a time where he's like, well, I had black friends growing up. And that's how they talked. So I put it in my movie. <laughs> he didn't have friends. Yeah, it was his mom. He had a single mom, and they lived in a poor area, and she dated a lot of African-American men. And, like, he was around that. That's what he says. I'm not saying, oh. like, you have to understand that this I'm saying that's what he says. Okay. So he was in that culture. Okay. But that doesn't, I don't think that makes, I think that's what made him feel like he could have like that scene in Pulp Fiction where he's saying that word straight to Samuel Jackson. Right. And it's like, you know, there's just these pieces of it. I think it's rightful criticism all throughout. Yeah. And, you know, and it's, it's things that I think he was very resistant to at first, which is how we got Jackie Brown. And he's like, I'm just going to have Sam Jackson just dropping this all movie long to make a point. And I think it's just sort of like, that's why I was like, it's sort of a middle finger in a way of like, well, are you doing this for the art? Or are you just doing this to make a point like I'm Quentin fucking Tarantino and I'm going to do this thing? And I think it's something that it seems like he's come to terms with. He's actually understood what the critiques were. And he's like, okay, I'm going to try and do better. And if I'm going to do a movie like that, it's going to be literally a movie about slavery in the South where they are using it. He'll come to terms with it and get and he gets better, but he will never for he'll never apologize for anything from the past, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying he needs to. It is just kind of funny if you bring that stuff up, yeah. he'll like deny that it's a problem till the end. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, he yeah. Yeah, all those interviews. Yeah. Yeah. But let's solve some of his movies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, there, there is the, the whole fact that there is a martial arts movie, right? This very famous martial arts movie with one prominent Asian character. And <laughs> it's, I think that was part of the criticism at the time, which I don't think it takes away from what he was doing, but it also it was part of at the beginning of like, Maybe let's not cast white people as anime characters, right? In like <laughs> adaptations of those. Well, they killed all the people <laughs> in the first movie, Tom. <laughs> they killed all the minorities in the first movie. They killed Copperhead mm-hmm. and they killed all those people in that Japanese tavern. Yeah. Well, at least he did. He was hiring, bringing in Sonny Chiba. You know, he's having like some of that Asian royalty. So he had more than just Lucy Liu. But it's not much more. No. no. But again, they all died in the first movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Second movie. I mean, I guess you you meet Hattori Hanzo guy, like, finally again. Yeah, right. Yeah. So like, they didn't die. But no. Uh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just more mad about Death Proof. <laughs> <laughs> just, You're just mad about how bad it was? Yeah. I just, I don't know. Again. Coulda, what he could have done. Let's. I'll rehash this. I said this before. The movie can start at like the fortieth minute mm-hmm. when he takes Rose McGowan's character Pam into his car, or does like a small introduction of the other characters, whatever. Says he's a stuntman, and then just kills her and kills the other girls. Boom, done. Yeah, that's how it should start. And then, like any good. Through, you know, slasher. The I guess I saw the full cut, so that's why 
Jesus, it took a while. Yeah, uh, that's all I'm gonna say. Yeah, that's. I think it's it's almost like a George Lucas problem. Should have left it alone more than yeah. could have, would have, should have. Because like it works nice because if you have the shorter format, the first ten minutes you're following this group of women. Yeah, and then twenty minutes in, they're on the road. And they get killed. It's doing that expectation thing. But mm-hmm. I agree. If you have too much of that time in the beginning, you're just bored. So I do kind of like that there's like, oh, is this movie about this group of girls? Because these 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 people are That's somewhat true. famous. Yeah. But then, oh, wait, no, they're dead. And yeah. it's it's total new crop, which is kind of like a serial killer thing. But mm-hmm. I agree that the full movie cut is way too much. Yeah. I think there is a little bit of that that seems to crop up. From that point onward. And Glorious Bastard seems like he's got a very firm control. I think there's points in Django where it starts to edge on feeling just a bit long, but it never gets out of control. And then I feel like hateful late, which is why I'm almost like laughing at like the Netflix idea of like extending it. Because I think <laughs> I agree with Pedro. They're like, that movie could be shorter. Like, you know, it's like, let's tighten this up, hit the beats a little sooner. Kurt Russell dying, you know, whatever it is, halfway through. I mean, spoiler alert, but... <laughs> I mean, honestly, the first episode could be Kurt Russell's up until he dies. Right. Mm-hmm. And then every other chapter after that is its own episode. Yeah. Eight episodes. Yeah. And just hammer Amazing. through. Right? 15 but minutes each. 20. He loves this film. <laughs> he does. He absolutely loves it. Yeah, coulda, woulda, shoulda for me is I wish I would have gone to that 70 millimeter... Uh, version they did where it had intermission it was on like oh, the yeah. extended like i forget which theater did it but it was like the big widescreen there's shots where you just have the whole room and you can see everybody and i mm. heard that like was it was kind of like seeing avatar or something it was like you had to be in the cinema man oh wow dang all right well it's, yeah it's a miss but once about time in hollywood too i feel like a little long as well and also yeah i don't know now that we've talked about the whole idea of, like, was this Brad Pitt being an unreliable narrator? God, I wish I would have leaned into that a little bit more. <laughs> like, I'm like, that, like that's an interesting idea of, like, oh, yeah, I killed the Manson family. Like, really? <laughs> well, something that took the sting out of that movie for me, too, was that has all these 70s needle drops. Mm-hmm. I'd say the majority of them were used in the bad times at El Rey, at the El Ray mm-hmm. that uh, uh, I can't think Drew Goddard movie that came out like six months before. Yeah, like hushes in it, like some of the more hippier songs. Like it's like half the songs in that movie are were like used in dramatic effect. Like. Months ago, like, and I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> Except for that vanilla fudge, that needle drop oh, as, yeah. as they were coming into the house when he's got uh, uh, Keep Me Hanging On. That's, mm-hmm. that's a pretty good one. But I also remember that from uh, Mad Men. That was just, Mad Men had a lot of those too, where it's like, oh my God, that's a, mm-hmm. that's an original of a cover? Like, what? Mm-hmm. And, man, there's a lot to it. Talking about going forward, though. And he's got got this Star Trek script that's been kicking around, and boy, am I morbidly curious about what <laughs> that would be. <laughs> I just cannot imagine putting any type of Star Trek character in a Tarantino movie. Well, I'll say this: at one time that uh, they made, they were around like Halloween five or six. They asked him if they if 
he would write a treatment for like Halloween six and his oh. Halloween six was literally like Michael in a car with like some like, cause later in the Halloween, there's like a pagan, like overlord guy gets weird and it's just them in a car. And he wrote this like very Tarantino script. That's the movie I want to see <laughs> the Halloween Tarantino. Mike Myers and this pagan guy. Yeah. <laughs> But like Mike Myers wouldn't, yeah, he's just not going to converse. So it's all just like you know, in say. France they got a Big Mac, they call it the Royale <laughs> cheese, and Mike Myers just stares back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, it's because they got the metric system. <laughs> he just has to talk the whole time. <laughs> so uh, we use liters of blood in our sacrifices, <laughs> <laughs> not gallons. Um, hmm, for Kill Bill. Yeah. Uh, explore Copperhead a bit more. She didn't get any yeah. real development. Fox? Yeah. 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 I could watch a prequel movie about her or something. Or a sequel with the daughter. Oh, yeah. That was always a thing that was played around with, I remember. Kill Bill Volume 3. Because yeah. she like pretty much tells the daughter, like, you're going to want revenge one day, and that's fine. I'm out here <laughs> like yeah. in these streets. Maybe he's just waiting. Maybe that is going to be number 10. My my pitch for Killing 10 good. is, I think, you know, we talked about he's great with tension. I would like him to do his play on the, like, hammer horror genre of, like, the 70s. Mm. Kind of gothic Victorian horror, but through that 70s, like, lens, like the Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, like, Dracula movies and oh, stuff yeah. like that. I just want kind of like a gothic horror with his sensibility. I think that'd be kind of interesting. Well, yeah, Goggins is back in it. I want Goggins back in it's the movie. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say Dracula. You said like a hammer yeah. like horror. Like yeah, I, I mean, it definitely does feel like the, he's last, the, priest. <laughs> the last living era that he really hasn't touched because obviously we had him making movies in the 90s, the yeah. aughts, the 2010s, the 40s, 60s, early on. We don't have an 80s movie, you know, of him no? And it feels maybe like that's kind of the last gem, and it's like maybe he uh, does. Death Proof. Death it's Proof is very, nice. like, the 80s. That, that is, is okay. 80s movie. All right. Sorry. Well, mm. then he did it. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. The, the 80s were not Death Proof. <laughs> I would still just love even, like, a sorry to, sorry to ruin it for you, Tom. You're all good. Well, uh, is it 80s? No, it's, like, 70s, 80s. It's like, No, she had a flip phone in that well, movie. Well, it doesn't take place then, but the, that's the style, what he's, like, right? going for is, like, these grindhouse, yeah. cheap, you know. But do we have something that's, like, Scarface... You know, somebody in Miami wearing a Hawaiian shirt, slinging drugs, like, that's the last frontier. Just throw Pedro Pascal in that shit, and we got a movie. Yeah. You want Quentin Tarantino's Vice City? Uh, yeah, basically. <laughs> With Pedro yeah. Pascal, I'd watch. I'm afraid he'll call him, I don't know, a spick or something. <laughs> <laughs> I can say that. This is Pedro. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't me. That was not Fred. Yeah. Um, I'm afraid that he's going to say that. <laughs> Pedro Pascal, guess what? I'm the captain of your yacht, and I'm going to say this to you. <laughs> oh, oh, boy. All right. So, okay, you're throwing, like, 80s crime. You Miami want Miami Vice. Vice. I just want, I want, yeah, Miami Vice, or I want Scarface. But Quentin Tarantino Scarface. All right. That's what I'd throw up. And you're casting who? Pedro Pascal? I'd love a Pascal role in that. Or maybe. Lead? Gra- hmm, maybe. Or maybe he is just like, a, 
he's kind of one of your drop in roles, sort of like you know a classic. Uh, I don't I don't walk-in. care what famous person you get. Whose career are you going to reinvigorate in this movie? That's the question. Oh yeah, reinvigorate. How about some EJO baby, some Edward, Edward James almost just slides in. Listen, you gotta understand a few. How things. do I reach these shores <laughs> to sell these drugs? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to. It was, <laughs> it was so spot on. You solved it. This, this, let's write the script and we'll pitch it to him. He's not Jaime Escalante. He's right. like Jaime Escobar. It's great. Mm. Guys, let's do our power rankings here. We've, Sorry. we've, we've jabbered on uh, a lot, and I feel like I just want to hear, what are your top three? We've, what are, we've talked yeah, about them all. What do you got, Pedro? Top three. Okay, let's start with number three. Okay. I'm going to go with Django Unchained Ooh. for number three. Okay. Good pick. Number two. Since we're considering it one movie, Kill Bill. Mm. And number one, Inglorious Bastards. Nice. It was very tough to come up with that list, but those are my top three. Good. That's solid. Just hit him and hit, hit him and quit it. <laughs> yep. Um I'll make it easy and say mine is exactly the same. Wow. All right. Yeah, there you go. So Django, mine Kill mine. Bill, and the number one is Inglorious. Mm-hmm. And I'd put Jackie Brown as like the one I was kind of Ooh, flopping between Django and Jackie. Django got and it. Jackie. So I'm going to throw it like this. Here's it. I'm throwing it down. Okay. Okay. I'm going to say number three. I, I can't in good conscience. I was going to pick Reservoir Dogs. I think that is the four. It's got to be Django Unchained. I. <laughs> it's great. But number two, I'm throwing Pulp Fiction in there. Yeah. Because I think Pulp Fiction is still that that movie just has so much that I've always wanted to do with a movie if I ever be made movies. And number one is Inglorious Bastards. I I think it's the consensus. It's his masterpiece. If we're really getting down to it, yeah, that was something I said very early on after it came out, like a year or two, and then like now that's like most people's number one movie. It's kind of cool. I like it. Yeah, it really has come around. So. I, I want to say one last thing because I forgot to say it and could have, would have, should have. Say it, baby. There say was it. an idea for a Django sequel that was Django meets Zorro, mm-hmm. and I'd watch that. I'd watch Bring that. back Antonio Banderas from the oh. those movies. Fresh off Puss in Boots. Hell yeah. <laughs> I'd put Pedro Pascal as Zorro, to be honest. Oh, yeah. I'd rather have him. You could have him like uh, Anthony Hopkins as like the, uh, not Anthony Hopkins, but Antonio <laughs> Banderas. Banderas. Antonio Banderas oh, no. as Anthony yeah, Hopkins. Yeah, you're right. Because wow. if people don't circle. remember, Anthony Hopkins is Zorro in the beginning Mass, of yeah, Matt yes. Zorro, and he actually has fight scenes, and it's great. <sighs> I feel like you he almost did. need a younger actor, though, now. Yeah, I like, agree. That's the problem. Like, you try and throw a Diego Luna or like a Pedro Pascal, they're almost like getting too old now. And All right, yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, I guess I mean that's the thing, right? Uh, I do like Tenoch Huerta. Oh, little Namor, Namor, Namor. Yeah, Namor. I about it, I like it. I do like it, dude. God, I love that he had a, a name origin, like um, an actual name origin, like the Han Solo name origin, like oh. your Han. Solo. A name more here by yourself. <laughs> so stupid. Uh, Wait, you got one, Fred? No, I was just checking. I'm pretty sure that uh, 
the 4K steelbook of The Mask of Zorro released this month, and I was Ooh. definitely going to add that to the collection because that movie's that. pretty good. Martin Campbell directed, so I mean, you know, he did some good James Bond movies. Yeah, that's true. So that brings us to the end of our episode, gents. Oh, thank uh, you for having me, guys. Yeah. You're welcome. Pedro, anything you would like to plug before we go? Um, yeah. I mean, if you guys are listening to this, please follow the Interchange Theater Co-op. Uh, it's a local theater co-op here. Fred and Tom have been involved. Uh, it's a local group of inv- improvisers brought it together in the heat of the pandemic. And uh, we're putting on shows, putting on classes, trying to bring long-form improvisation back into the city. So, yeah, you can follow us at the Interchange Theater Co-op on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, guys. Yeah, same goes for me. Check out theinterchangetheater.com. Tom, you want to plug the cast? Of course I do. Uh, We are State of the Franchise with Fred and Tom on Facebook, on Twitter, at the SOTF pod on Instagram, State of the Franchise. That's all one word. If you want to email the podcast, we are at State of the Franchise Podcast at gmail.com. If you feel like giving us a one time donation, we do have a virtual tip jar at buymeacoffee.com slash SOTF. And stay tuned for next time where we'll be talking about the TV show. And I know Fred's very excited. Taskmaster. You gonna watch some tonight, Tom? Ooh, what else are you gonna it's watch? It's a good tonight? show. Oh, Pedro, you know about it? Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. Taskmaster's good. It's the hardest show to get people into, but anyone watches it, they're like, this is good. It's yeah. good. Yeah. We're gonna have a great time with it. We're gonna be doing some tasks. We might have a couple surprises coming up. Oh dear. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, might yeah, have yeah. some things in store. Well, good luck. <laughs> well, thanks again for being here, Pedro. Appreciate Thank you for having coming. me, guys. Yep, and uh, we'll see y'all next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.